0: Good morning to you, good day to you, wherever you might be as you are listening to this radio program. This is Radio Orbit, and you're listening to it right now. It's just a few minutes after 11 o'clock. This is Mike Hagan. I'm your host every week, and it is the 17th of April, 2006. Tonight, my guest, James Kent. If you want to get a leg up, hop on the web, go over to com. Tripsine.com. We'll be talking about, among other things, uh, James's new book called "Psychedelic Information Theory." It's an amazing treatise on uh, consciousness. As a matter of fact, uh, from a from a from a very interesting position. All right. So, um, thanks to Dr. Michael Heisen last week, my friend Dr. Heisen from the Sirius Institute in Pune. Hawaii, doing wonderful work with whales and dolphins, communication, language, and uh, somebody whose work really needs to be supported. So, Dr. Heisen, thanks for a fascinating show as always. Wonderful program last week. And thanks also to Lisa Walker for providing the killer music for the show last week. Wonderful stuff, Lisa. And um, as I think of it, actually, I think Michael mentioned last week, you know, they're going to do this webcast like they did last year where they broadcast whale songs out into deep space. And I want to try to be a part of that this year. And it's coming up in a few months. And they need to raise some money for that, too. So if you're interested in helping out in uh, getting the uh, whale songs uh, transmitted out into space like we did last year, you can go over to planetpuna.com, P-L-A-N-E-T-P-U-N-A.com, and um, you can find out how you can help out uh, Dr. Heisen and the Sirius Institute. Okay? All right, tonight, as I said, uh, it's the 17th of April. James Kent, he's the author of Psychedelic Information Theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason. He's an amazing guy. I'm lucky I caught up with him a few weeks ago and we decided to do this. And uh, he's been informed by some of the great minds uh, that have come before him. So it'll be a real uh, treat to have James on on the air in just about an hour, a little less than that probably. Uh, but there were a lot of people who listened to the program who had requested that I talk with James, and I really wasn't familiar with his work until recently, but I'm glad you did, and uh, we'll do that tonight. Okay? Uh, some of the stuff that we'll be talking about is a little bit more sophisticated, so you might want to hop on the web and go over to his website, like I said, or go to my website at MikeHagan.com and just click on one of the uh, one of the links there for James, or go directly over to his website and snoop around a little bit. You might check out... Uh, his paper on signal theory in particular, uh, but we'll be discussing recent uh, information and uh, publication in brain science and evolutionary biology and neurology and consciousness studies and things like that. So anyway, okay, let's get on with it here. Thanks for the nice emails. Hello to everybody listening over the web. Congratulations to Mandy, my friend. I'm very proud of you. Good for you. The world now is your oyster. And uh, hi to my new friend, Elizabeth, who I met tonight down at the Fugue, and also uh, the guys from ISM, a pretty cool band that we got a chance to hear a little bit of tonight uh, that I'm going to try to feature on the program sometime in the next few weeks. Okay? All right, thanks to Larry, the web wizard. More new stuff on the website at MikeHagan.com including a new sort of cool private messaging system for registered users, which I was sort of messing around with today, which was really fun. So anyway, Larry, working his magic as always. Uh, we also just added a page for literature and poetry. We call it the Poets' Corner. But um, as I mention every week, yeah, you know, send us your music. Send us your art. Send us your poetry. Send it. Send it. We love it. And we're trying to find places to put it up on the website, okay? So thanks to everybody who's already been doing that. We've got some wonderful visual art that's come in from Bob in uh, Jefferson City. And uh, Ron has sent some amazing stuff. And you guys know who you are. But everybody else, uh, send that stuff. The music, of course, you're hearing every week, the music that's being sent to us. So that's no surprise. And we don't want to hear more of it. And I look forward to it. Okay, so check it out on the web and let me know what you think and um, thanks again to Larry. amazing stuff as always and with that in mind, uh one more thing regarding the website I'm trying to build a a mailing list you know of my listeners so uh, so I know who you are and how to communicate with you when I want to and and you know i'm I promise it's not to send frivolous stuff. I'm not going to send you a bunch of email or anything. I just want to know who you are and have a valid email address. So if there is something that's important that I think is reasonable, you know, to send out, I'll send it to you. And part of this, you know, is about community and and you know, uh, aligning yourself and becoming associated with. And yeah, why not becoming friends with like-minded people? You know, and there are a lot of us out there sort of spread thin, few and far between, so to speak, but we have the technology now vis-a-vis the World Wide Web that we can all, you know, just visit each other in our backyards, so to speak. So don't be shy. Hop on the web. Go over to MikeHagan.com and just register. And uh, that way you don't even have to give me any information. It's basically nothing. Just give me an email address, Make up a fake name if you want. I don't want your address, uh, your snail mail address or anything like that. I don't want a phone number. I just want to know to con- a, a way to contact you if, uh, if there's a good reason to. All right. And if you do that, there's also a couple things on the web that you'll get. Uh, Jeff and William, my friends from Yachai Music, have made their entire CD, Sweet Mother Mercy, available for download. And it's killer stuff. You've heard some of it on the, on, on the show here. Those guys are great. And uh, they've made their most recent CD in its entirety available. If you go over to my website and register, you can download that. And Larry has um, put together some screensavers and, I don't know, there's lots of stuff. So if you're up for it, go over there and register and that way I can uh, start to build a mailing list, okay? And we'll start to create a community and a force to be reckoned with, if you know what I mean. Alright, my email address is orbitradio at AOL.com. That's O-R-B-I-T-R-A-D-I-O, orbitradio at AOL.com. The website, as always, www.mikehagen.com. And the phone number here in the studio, if you get the gumption, and it's important, uh, call me at a break on, uh, area code 573-874-5676. Okay, and if you're outside of the of the uh, area code, it's one eight hundred eight nine five all right? Okay, so maybe we should talk really quickly here. We'll do some upcoming guest uh, information, and then we'll play some music. I'm going to feature the music of Eskimo, my friend Brendan Angelides, again. And it's sort of fitting, I ran into these guys' ism tonight, and they're from New York, and Brendan's from New York, so we'll play uh, we'll play music from Eskimo tonight, and we'll feature that throughout the show. Anyway, upcoming guests. All right, tonight, as I said, James Kent, the author of Psychedelic Information Theory. Get on the web www.tripzine.com or mikehagan.com, and you can click over from there. Next week, we're going to have um, sort of an open show. I'm just going to open up the phone lines. I'm not going to have a um, a guest to interview. And anybody who's interested can call, and we'll talk about whatever you want to talk about, whatever's on your mind. I also have some news to catch up on, and there's always plenty to talk about. So we'll do that next week. We'll take a week off from uh, interviews, and we'll just sort of do a, uh, uh, a seat of our pants show, and you guys can get involved, and we'll uh, we'll chat it up. Okay. The following week is the first of May, May Day. And I'm really excited. I mentioned it last week, but now I'm even more uh, excited about it because it's sort of coming together. But uh, we'll have Dr. Dennis McKenna, uh, again, who was just on the program a couple of weeks ago with uh, Stephen Buner, Stephen Harrod Buner. Amazing show, those two guys together. But anyway, Dr. Dennis on the air live this week or this time with Richard Glenn Bohr. And Richard Glenn Bohr of course, is the proprietor, Uh, or the director, I should say, of the Center for Cognitive Liberty and Ethics. And you can check them out on the web at CognitiveLiberty.org. But anyway, Richard Glenn and Dr. Dennis McKenna on the air together. And we're going to do something special for that show. As I said, it's May 1st. And uh, those guys are interested in um, questions from the listening audience and because of the way the phones are set up here at the station I really can't take any calls if I have both of them on the air at the same time so I'm putting together a little forum that is going to be here at the station some people that are going to join me and uh, over the next two weeks I'm gonna invite a couple of listeners uh, to be a part of that forum so at midnight right at the top of the hour I'm going to play uh, the sort of theme music that I play right before I bring a guest on the air. It's sort of that spacey, funky music with uh, Kara talking about uh, Radio Orbit in the background there. But anyway, that's a piece of music that was written by Eskimo, as a matter of fact. But anyway, when you hear that, uh, right before I bring my guest on at the top of the hour, um, if you either call here or send me an email, and I'll see the timestamp on the email at orbit radio at AOL.com, uh, the first person will be invited on May 1st to come down here to the station and hang out with us and get to personally ask a few questions to uh, Richard Glenn and Dr. Dennis McKenna uh, when we talk to them on May Day. Okay, so that's coming up on May 1st. On the 8th uh, of May, we have an open date, but I have a feeling something will drop in there on the 15th, Dr. Alan Goldstein, he's a pr- uh, professor of biomaterials, he's also the chair of molecular cell biology, and he's also the chair of uh, biomedical materials and the engineering and science program at Alfred University. In other words, he's a freaking genius. All right? And he's on the leading edge of nanobiotechnology, and we're going to talk with him about exactly that, about what's happening in the world of the small. Okay. That's coming up on the 15th of May, and it's stunning. And if you have a chance, hop on the web and go over to my news page and do a quick search for the word nanobot, N-A-N-O-B-O-T. And there's an article there that was penned by Dr. Goldstein. It's called I Nanobot, and it's the article that prompted me to search him out and get in touch with him, but it's absolutely remarkable. And if you have a chance, go read that, okay? All right, on the 22nd of May, Rihanna Eisler, the remarkable author of The Chalice and the Blade. And uh, I've got Char Davies, another wonderful artist and a virtual reality pioneer. She's coming up in a couple weeks or months as well. Depends on how we work out the schedule. So anyway, Char Davies is amazing too. You've got to check out her artwork. We'll get uh, get some of that stuff up on the web really quickly, okay? All right, so this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And... um, We'll come back and do space weather in just a minute, but let's take a break here and listen to the cool sounds of my buddy, Brandon Angelidis, Eskimo, on Radio Orbit. This is called Isle of Sky, back in just a few minutes. It's Isle of Sky. Okay, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And let's do space weather real fast, okay? All right, there was an interesting story that I thought I would just read here fast. Uh, Uranus has been in the, in the news um, a lot lately. So here's a little story about the, the planet Uranus, or Uranus, for those of you who want to be silly. Ancient people didn't have TV or electric lights, so when the sun went down every night, they got their entertainment by watching the sky. And it was entertaining. Without city lights to interfere, the Milky Way was spectacular. Meteors flitted across the sky. Zodiacal lights chased the sunset. Of special interest were the five naked-eye planets, the ones you could see without a telescope. Uh, The ancients didn't have telescopes per se, apparently. They did have some very interesting devices, however, as we talk about on the show once in a while. But anyway, uh, countless hours were spent watching Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, uh, whose movements were thought to control the affairs of men. Would you believe in spite of all that watching, they missed one? There's a sixth planet you can see without a telescope, a naked-eye planet, and that planet was named George. George is not as bright as the others, but it is there, glowing like an aqua blue star of 6th magnitude. It measures 4 times wider than Earth and has more than 30 moons and a dozen or so thin rings. George goes around the sun every uh, every 84 years and spins on its side as if something knocked it over. George is better known as Uranus. And there's a whole uh, story behind why it was originally called George. But anyway, if you want to get on the web... Go on over to spaceweather.com. to they got the full story over there. And what else is happening here? Uh, Easter Sunday yesterday, so I took a look at the sun, and there was actually some pretty interesting things happening on the sun yesterday. Lots of strange snake-like, worm-like filaments creeping across the sun's surface. And um, these filaments are supposedly clouds of hydrogen that seem to be somehow held above the sun's surface by the magnetic field, and they look dark because they are cooler than the layers of material that uh, uh, that exist beneath them, but a filament is uh, still very hot apparently just not as hot as what uh, what's happening down d- down there below it but anyway they're very big and they're easy to see through uh, a certain uh, like an h filter telescope and they are sometimes uh, indicators of activity to come so we'll keep an eye on the sun like we always do and if you're interested in that uh, always go over to Kent's site at www.cyberspaceorbit.com my good friend Kent Stedman if you're interested in the sun or if you want to hear or find out what's happening on the sun before anybody else knows what's happening uh, go over there to his site because he's the man alright now here's one check this out uh, incoming comet now, this is, I just, those aren't my words. That's from the article on space weather, okay? Uh, Comet 73P-Schwassmann-Wachmann-3, which I mentioned last week and the week before, I think, is approaching Earth and fast, says amateur astronomer Giuliani Poulin from the mont Mejantic Observatory. I'm guessing that that's in uh, Italy. Who made this movie, and he mentions a movie uh, that is available on the web. If you go to my website and click over to Uh, spaceweather.com, you will see this movie uh, that was made from a telescope that's watching this particular comet. And uh, anyway, he grabs a shot of this fragment, they call it Fragment B, and it is traveling some 36,000 miles per hour. Uh, He took a picture of it on April 11th, and um, not shown in this particular movie that Giuliani made, but there are 19 other fragments of this comet that are also heading in the direction of Earth. Uh, This swarm will pass about 6 million miles, this is the official estimates, Uh, about 6 million miles from Earth between May 12th and the 14th, and um, that's just coming up in a couple of three weeks, and it should be actually an amazing view to anybody with a telescope, And there even are supposed to be some naked eye events that we might see, you know, uh, meteor-type events uh, blazing through the atmosphere that might accompany this close encounter with a a comet that fragmented a number of years ago. And uh, it's a comet that's been observed for quite some time. But like I said, I think it was three or four years ago, we mentioned it last week on the show, that uh, it split up. And now oh uh, man who knows you know who knows what's going on with it but I'll read something else in just a little while about that okay anyway one other thing here we'll go over a couple events um, that are happening in the sky over the next few days the closest ever flyby of the sun uh, happened actually today and went on for the next couple weeks it was by a, uh, a probe that was called Helios 2 and that was a uh, uh, in 1976, 30 years ago. It's also the 35th anniversary of the Salyut 1 launch uh, on April 19th. That was, uh, Salyut 1 was the first space station. It was a Russian craft, but uh, that will be 35 years ago, 1971. Salyut 1 was launched on April 19th. What else? There's an interesting little workshop going on in Edinburgh, Scotland, right now. Uh, actually, the 20th through the 22nd, the Alternative Gravities and Dark Matter Workshop. Now, just the title of that should tell you something's going on. Uh, CloudSat Calypso Delta II launch on on April 21st. And uh, the Lyrids meteor shower will be peaking about a week from now on the 22nd of April. So if you want to do some uh, some meteor shower watching... A week from now will be good. Actually, it and, and will be pretty close to a new moon, too, so it should be really dark out. It might be really good on that night, April 22nd, and the night's uh, right around there, the 21st and the 23rd. Okay? All right, so... Um, now, let me read this other article to you, all right? This is on the news page, if you're interested in it. Uh, I mentioned this comment, right? That even the straight scientists are telling it's going to come really close to us and it's called 73P Schwassmann-Wachmann 3 well here uh, there's this guy his name is um, Eric Julien. he's a French fella don't, don't hold that against him anyway he's a former military air traffic controller and listen what he says uh, the title here the press release from uh, where is this uh, from U.S. Newswire it says former military air traffic controller claims comet collision with Earth on May 25, 2006. Contact Dr. Michael Sala of the Exopolitics Institute gives a phone number here. It's on the web, so I'll give it out on the on the air here. 808-323-3400 or Dr. Sala D-R-S-A-L-L-A at Exopolitics Institute o r g, and this is from Kealakea, Hawaii. It says Eric Julian, a former French military air traffic controller and senior airport manager, has completed the study of the Comet 73P Schwassmann-Wachmann and declared that a fragment is highly likely to impact the Earth on or around May 25, 2006. Nope. Take that for what it's worth. You might go on the on the web and read that story. There's much more information about it out there. Uh, that's on the news page at the top of my um, on the top of the news page over at my website www.mikehagan.com. And com. Uh, and wild stuff going on. Wild stuff as always. All right, so let's play another song or two. I'm going to take a little bit of a uh, break here. And come back, talk to you some more. We have some stories in the news that we'll go over. And then at the top of the hour, we'll have James Kent, the author of the uh, soon-to-be-released Psychedelic Information Theory. All right? So this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Eskimo, again, Brendan Angelitas, And you can find out information about Brendan on uh, on the web, www.eskmo.com. Dot .com. And this is Rain 320, one of my favorite tunes of his. Brendan Angelitas, that's Eskimo. We heard uh, we heard Rain 320 and good stuff from Brendan. You can check him out on the web at eskmo.com. And he's been on the program before, and Eskimo's a great guy, making great art. All right, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And it's about 11.45 on the 17th of April. I'm closing in on uh, Tuesday morning. And we'll do a couple stories in the news here, and then we'll get to our guest James Kent at the top of the hour if you want to get a leg up hop on the web and uh check him out at com, or just go over to my website at mikehagan.com and you can click over to James's uh site from there okay and real interesting stuff and uh some stuff that might be uh, good to have open in the background as we as we're talking coming up here, okay? All right, let's see. What else? Um, I just read you that story about the comet. Listen to this. A uh, new paper in the, uh, in the journal Nature shows that cell division is reversible. This just came out today. Uh, Gary J. Gorbsky, Ph.D., a scientist with the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation, has found a way to reverse the process of cell division. The discovery could have important implications for the treatment of cancer, birth defects, and numerous other diseases and disorders. yeah, no no shit. Uh, Gorbsky's findings appear in the April thirteenth issue of the journal Nature. No one has gotten the cell cycle to go backwards before now, said Gorbsky, who holds the w h and Betty Phelps chair in developmental biology at uh, the Oklahoma Medical Research Foundation. This shows that certain events in the cell cycle that have long been assumed irreversible may, in fact, be reversible. All right, of course, as always, there's more to that story. Hop on the web and go over to my website, MikeHagan.com, and just click on the news page, and you'll see that story uh, as you page down. Just, I think it's on second or third from the top. And then you can, you can actually go over to uh, the source article where it came from. So you know I didn't make it up, all right? And here's another one I didn't make up. The headline here says, "Print me a heart and a set of arteries." Now uh, this is sort of a follow-up. If you remember, a month or two ago, I did a story about uh, this idea of printing biological parts, organs, etc., and it actually is a story that's. Uh, Comes right, up, uh, comes right out of Columbia, Missouri, right here. So check this out. Sitting in a cultured dish, a layer of chicken heart cells beats in synchrony. But this muscle layer was not sliced from an intact heart nor even grown laboriously in the lab. Instead, it was printed using a technology that could be the future of tissue engineering. Gabor Forzaks, a biophysicist at the University of Missouri in Columbia, hello, I'm just across the street from you, sir. uh, Described his bioprinting technique last week at the Experimental Biology 2006 meeting in San Fran. uh, It relies on droplets of bio-ink, clumps of cells, a few hundred micrometers in diameter, which Forjax has found uh, behave just like a liquid. This means that droplets placed next to one another will flow together and fuse, forming layers, rings, or other shapes, depending on how they were deposited. To print 3D structures, Forjax and his colleagues alternate layers of supporting gel, dubbed biopaper, with the bioink droplets. To build tubes that could serve as blood vessels, for instance, they lay down successive rings containing muscle and endothelial cells, which line our arteries and veins. We can print any desired structure in principle, Forjax told the meeting. Wow. Amazing. Uh, So anyway, again, much more to that particular article as well. That comes from New Scientist, another wonderful publication that's pushing some really cutting-edge stuff. So NewScientist.com, you can read this. And this is happening right around the corner here, people. This is at the University of Missouri. And uh, for those of you listening on the web, you know, I'm in Columbia. So you may not really know that, but I'm right here at the University of, of, of Missouri, essentially. All right, here's another article. Check this out. Singularity Summit at Stanford explores future of superintelligence. This comes from Ray Kurzweil. The Stanford University Symbolic Systems Program and the Singularity Institute for Artificial Intelligence announced today the Singularity Summit at Stanford, a one-day event free to the public to be held Saturday, May 13, 2006 at Stanford Memorial Auditorium, at Stanford University in California. The event will bring together leading futurists and others to examine the implications of the quote-unquote singularity, a hypothesized creation of superintelligence as technology accelerates over the coming decades, and some would argue over the coming months and years, not decades, uh, to address the profound implications of this radical and controversial scenario. The singularity will be a future period during which the pace of technological change will be so rapid, its impact so deep, that human life will be irreversibly transformed, said Ray Kurzweil, keynote speaker and author of the best-selling The Singularity is Near, When Humans Transcend Biology. Based on models for technology development that I've used to forecast technological change successfully for more than 25 years, I believe computers will pass the Turing test by 2029. And by the 2040s, our civilization will be billions of times more intelligent. Now, the Turing test, I think, has to do with the complexity of, of human neurology and, and uh, having a, a computer basically be able to sort of uh, complete the same number of calculations per second or something silly like that. But anyway, uh, they're talking about really smart machines. All right. What else do we have here in the news? This one comes from London, from the Telegraph. It's entitled, The Search for Salome's Secret. And it's a really important story, maybe. Maybe as important as that story about silver that I read a few months ago. The place that Salome Simon calls home is a rickety, spearman-painted shack with a listing tin roof, under which are squeezed two beds, offering strikingly different comfort levels, one is a pink-curtained affair of almost Barbara Carlandesque splendor. The other is low, plain, and hard. And it is where Salome's work as a 50p-a-trick Kenyan prostitute is done. The local punters are not the only ones with an interest in her service. To Western scientists and medical researchers, Salome is a human specimen of potentially incalculable value. Despite playing her trade for more than two decades... In a country ravaged by AIDS, she has never contracted HIV, and every credible study of her case points toward her being immune to it. If the secret of her immunity could be identified and its ingredients reproduced in the lab, the world might be vastly closer to developing an effective AIDS vaccine. An amazing story. Uh, on the web, again, go to my site, go over to the news page, page down. It's called The Search for Salome Secret. It's a lot longer than that. potentially much more important uh, than the uh, 30 seconds that I just gave it. (sighs) You know, and the way this stuff gets interesting and the way that people get, uh, the way that this stuff gets worked out is if a whole bunch of people start talking about it, you know, and telling other people about it. And eventually it creates a critical mass. and, And then maybe some more attention gets paid to it and you can actually come closer to finding out what's happening. Same case with lots of things, including what we'll be talking about tonight with james Kent, you know something that he's been working on and helping push forward for you know for three decades, maybe longer uh, all right here's another great one. listen to this: new books on folklore detail mythic ties of the old world to the new west coast uh, west coast author gary varner's newest book on folklore and mythology uh, and mythology it's called The Mythic Forest, the Green Man, and the Spirit of Nature. Provides new insight into the ancient archetype known as the Green Man. Released in March 2006 by Al Gora, uh, a respected New York academic publisher, Uh, the book is, according to the publisher, a delightful world tour of traditions and beliefs related to trees and forests. The Mythic Forest highlights modern-day revivals of ancient customs and identifies the Green Man motif in American architecture, his face peering out from behind the leaves, in California banks and New York brownstone homes. The book will appeal to readers interested in folklore and legends, mythology, urban archaeology, and, of course, trees and their lore. Trees and forests are rich in symbolism and have been feared or revered since man began to walk the earth. Mankind has given a recognizable face to the awesome and impalpable forces of nature in the image of the green man and the nature spirits that this book explores. Let's see here. Harvard Telescope Looking for Aliens. Well, we don't read it. Don't really need to read more than that. Professor predicts human time travel this century. Really, no, no need to read any more of that either. Maybe this decade. First night's tempo discovered. Plants helped ants evolve. Well, plants helped everything evolve. Okay, there's a news flash. All right, one one, one more here I'll read, and then we'll play another song from Eskimo, and then we'll come back with James Kent, all right? Uh, Scientists begin dig at Bosnian Pyramid. This is another sort of update. We read about this, or I read this story, the initial discovery, just a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago. I don't know, you tell me. I don't know when I read it, but I know I read it a while ago. History-laden hill contains human-made tunnels, researchers say. Archaeologists began digging Friday for what they hope is an ancient pyramid hidden beneath a mysterious Bosnian hill that has long been the subject of legend. The Bosnian archaeologist leading the work says the 2,120-foot-tall mound rising above the small town of Visoko resembles pyramid sites in Latin America that he has studied. It would be the first pyramid ever discovered in Europe. Initial research on the hill, known as Visoshika found that it had perfectly shaped 45-degree slopes pointing toward the cardinal points and a flat top. Under layers of dirt, workers discovered a paved entrance plateau, entrances to tunnels, and large stone blocks that might be part of the pyramid's outer surface. Satellite photographs and thermal imaging revealed two other smaller pyramid-shaped hills in the Visoko Valley. Yeah, they might find more the more they look for. You know, we were talking with Kent Stedman, and I mentioned another story uh, that came out from uh, Boston last week about these amazing megalithic mounds and cairns and pyramid structures that are all up and down the eastern seaboard of the United States. Tens of thousands of mounds, many of which are laid out uh, to the configurations of star patterns and constellations. In Wisconsin, there are 20,000 of them. In Wisconsin, alone. Uh, so they're everywhere. And uh, it's now sort of just coming out you know, to light that the, the stuff that was going on many years ago is not exactly what we're, uh, what we're taught or what we've been led to believe. You know, there's lots of things we don't know about the past and lots of things that are much stranger than we ever thought possible. So, anyway, all right, uh, check out more stuff. There's a whole lot more stories on the news page. Those are just a few that I wanted to grab out and read to you. So, anyway, we'll be back in just a minute with uh, James Kent. So, this is Mike. you listen to Radio Orbit. And, uh, like I said, get on the web, t r i p z i n e. dot com. You can see what... Uh, James is into and there's lots of interesting information there. I might recommend the uh, page on psychedelic information theory or signal theory those are two things that you might read but there's lots of stuff that we'll be talking about probably tonight so anyway just go over there and surf around and see what he's up to so uh, this is Mike as I said radio orbit will be back in just a few minutes
1: Kagan on KOPN 89.5
0: Everybody. It's Mike. It's Radio Orbit. Just a few minutes after midnight straight up on the 18th of April. My guest tonight is James Kent. He's the author of the soon-to-be-published psychedelic information theory, Shamanism in the Age of Reason. James is also the proprietor of Tripzine.com, the former publisher of Psychedelic Illuminations magazine. He's a wealth of both historical and current information and we'll talk with him about uh, a number of different things but uh, he's with us tonight and there were a number of guests uh, or listeners actually that have emailed me over the last couple months that had requested that I get in touch with James and we were able to put it together so he's with us now and we welcome him to Radio Orbit. James thanks a lot for being here tonight. Well, no
1: problem. It's a pleasure to be here. How are you? I'm good. It's been a long day but I'm settling in here.
0: Coming uh, to us from I'm what part of
1: the chat? Oh, I'm in Seattle.
0: In Seattle. That's lovely right. Seattle, I, yeah. Lovely Seattle. That's right. Up there in the Pacific Northwest. And um, California originally, huh? I spent a lot of time well, in this.
1: Well, yeah. I, went to a, I spent a four years in college and a year after college in Southern California. Hmm. In Redlands, the Inland Empire. <laughs> California. I also lived in Hollywood and L.A., various parts of L.A. on and off for about three years. Before relocating to Seattle.
0: All right. Well, I tell you what. Let's um, let's start out with a little bit of stuff like that. Let's do a little bit of background. Some of the listeners uh, of the program are familiar with your work. Some probably are not. Um, I know that uh, maybe we'll start a little. Maybe we could tell us a little bit about how you got involved with psychedelic magazines to begin with. Well, not.
1: I'll give you I'll give you a brief history and I'll tell you some surprising tidbits about myself. Okay. Uh, I was. Raised in Hawaii, um, huh. my father was an FBI agent stationed in Hawaii. Interesting. He and my mother met on the Berkeley Police Department in the in the late 60s. So it was a nice place to be uh, on the police department <laughs> huh. when there was a lot of radical and hippie
0: activity. Yeah, Berkeley in 67. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, my brother and I were born shortly after that, and uh, my father uh, transferred into the FBI and he was relocated to Hawaii as his permanent station. So I grew up in a pretty law and order. Background: very conservative Republican, (laughs) and um, I was also a minority in Hawaii, being a white kid. Uh, I mean, there were other white kids, but we were definitely the minority. So it was sort of a kind of a weird cultural climate that I grew up in. But uh, that's you know I feel comfortable in the Pacific Rim now, anywhere in Asia, the West Coast. It's like the whole Pacific Rim is comes together in Hawaii. But anyway, uh, I didn't even do drugs until I was uh, didn't even try drugs until I was 20, 21. And the first illegal drug I tried was LSD. Hmm. Um, I hadn't even smoked pot before that. I had done some drinking in in high school, but uh, I was introduced to LSD um, years earlier. My parents and my older brother had a falling out because my my older brother uh, was like having LSD mailed to him, <laughs> and they found out about it. And it was it was just a really bad scene. It was both of them handled it really badly. It was just like a. You know, uh, an unstoppable force and an immovable object colliding, right. and they both just kind of just blew apart. But uh, you know, that's all cleared up now. But anyway, it was uh, it was sort of like a this mystery to me why this this you know these such a tiny piece of paper could be so powerful.
0: Right, caused so much uh, stress. So and much it was stress. you
1: know it was introduced to me by some people that I trusted, and I did some reading on it and realized that there was a bona fide mystery there. Mm-hmm. So it intrigued me in that way. And I was very uh I had sort of gone through a phase where I was fascinated with the occult and uh black magic and mm. chaos magic and you know, coincidence theory and a lot of different uh you know, weird things that, you know, weren't really classified as uh you know, a belief system other than right. sort of occult or eccentric. Mm-hmm. And when I saw when I kind of was exposed to L S D and did some reading about what it was, I realized that this somehow all fit into that and I can figure out exactly why. So I took the opportunity to experiment with it and realized that there really was something significant going on. Even though I couldn't figure out exactly what it was, mm-hmm. it was enough to blow me away. Um, the first dose I took really wasn't a very strong dose. It was you know, probably, in retrospect, about 150 micrograms, wow. which would be a half, I suppose, from the old days. Yeah. And, um, you know, it wasn't full tilt boogie, but I was definitely feeling it and getting getting the vibe off of it and knew that it was, you know, a very powerful space. And, uh, I, you know, I sort of intuitively felt a lot of things that I couldn't articulate until many years later. When right,
0: I, right. Like many, like many people have.
1: Learned, when I learned about the experience, but um, I knew after doing it that I had to kind of, Figure this out for myself because mm-hmm. everywhere I looked, nobody had any answers or any answers that satisfied me. So, you know, I, I said, I'm a smart guy. I, I know how to read and I can figure stuff out. So I'm going to see if I can figure this out.
2: Right.
1: And you know, here it is, <laughs> 16 years later. Of course, you know, I wasn't in a dedicated academic track. My, my path towards figuring it all out meandered through various different uh, avenues, but. You know I'm at a point in my life now where I kind of want to codify my experience and try to uh, put it all down you know try to tell it as best as I can what I've learned otherwise it's, it was pretty much just a you know a detour of my life where I took a lot of drugs and, and read a lot of science books
2: right, right.
1: <laughs> so now that I' now that I've kind of come through the other side of that and, and topped myself out on the subject is the way I like to say uh, I kind of learned everything that there is to learn about the subject and uh, I'm now at the point where I'm, you know, coming up with my own my own theories and trying to, you know, find ways to gauge whatever experimental data I can find against that theory to see if it if it holds up.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's sort of the point that I am right now. And, uh, and the publication of my book will probably be the first chance I get to have any real peer review and, you know, feedback from I've already gotten feedback from the psychedelic community at large, but the academic community still hasn't really. Mm-hmm. Thing
0: to take a look at it <laughs> well yeah i mean that's a, that's a it's a leap because uh uh for for people if you're listening uh, as i've said a couple times hop on the web and um if you go to tripzine.com and then click on there's a link that says psychedelic uh, psychedelic information theory from there you can actually look at the table of context
1: yeah it's pretty extensive
0: oh my gosh it James.
1: quite a bit of detail
0: yeah and you get a good look at it
1: here. you know and it really is uh, kind of because I'm a I'm a presentational perfectionist. You know, if I'm going to present something to the public, I want somebody to sit down and be able to read it start to finish and understand it and have all of the background information that they need. Mm. And um, you know, and sometimes it's a hard slog to get through it, but if you if you can get through it, then you'll you know you'll know a lot more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, no doubt. Well, you, know, you need to kind of have, know, have the context of how the brain works and. and what its primary functions are to understand how those you know, functions are are augmented uh, to the potential that they are under the influence of psychedelics.
0: All right, well l- let's actually let's talk a little bit about about the foundations then, because uh, you know I was reading your paper on signal theory mm-hmm. earlier, and we're talking about basically a new way to look at consciousness.
1: Essentially, um, you know, it's not. I don't know if it's so much of a new way as opposed to um, just a way that's not really looked at very often. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: People kind of assume consciousness is a, you know, a linear process. We, we, you know, perception hits our senses. There's some sort of crude analysis that goes on with that data, and then it kind of hits our waking consciousness, where we receive that sensory data, and then it goes into memory. End of story. But that's that's. Sort of, I mean, that's a very crude model of how perception and memory work. Really perception is a lot of back and forth between perception and analysis, and, and there may be a lot more analysis going on underneath your waking perception than, than you realize. You only get the stuff that's fully integrated. You only get fully integrated data trickling up into your consciousness. You don't get like blurry red shape. What is that? Mm-hmm. <coughs> you, you get, oh, that's a bird, mm. you know, until you can actually Look at it and clarify it. Oh no, that's just a taco wrapper going across the ground. Right. So, um, you get, you get, so even if it's, even if it's incomplete data, nothing is fed forward into your consciousness that's ambiguous. It's always got some sort of, some sort of modifier on it that, that tags either important or not important. Hmm. Important signal, not important background noise. And, um, my theory takes hold of the notion that, um, What we what we perceive as as real from moment to moment is maybe less than 20% actual sense data, and the rest of it, 80%, is is filled in by uh, assumptions that our brain makes about our environment based on the the familiarity of the context Mm -hmm. we're Mm in. Right. So if you're sitting in your in your studio or your bedroom or your car or a familiar space. You're really not seeing everything that's in your field of vision. Your brain just kind of paints it in as, yeah, I know that's there. Yeah. You know your wind visor is there in your car. You don't constantly have to update that image. So it's just, you know, an assumption that your brain makes. And the way it does that is it sort of kind of it, it feeds that signal, the constant signal, back on itself, back and forward. You get this kind of feedback. Right. The thing is constant. You get a feedback state. You hold it in state in your brain. That thing disappears. The state will change. If you know, light is shine on it, the contrast will shine, and that, and that will kind of update the image in your mind. Okay. But until you get that progressive update, things are kind of held in this, what I call a recurrent feedback state, mm-hmm. where uh, uh, your brain is really doing most of the processing and your senses are, are just kind of waiting for anything to change, it, any rapid change in any environmental variable. Okay. So the theory goes that this feedback paints so much of our reality. If you were to excite that feedback, like you excite feedback coming through a guitar amplifier or in a, in a, in a delay effect box, what you get is an echo effect, a slight echo effect, right. or um, something like a, a trailing off effect, a decay that's, like, that's, that's slow. Uh, so something that's transitory in your brain sticks longer than it would normally. It updates more times. Uh, in that in that excited state. So when you when you if you're on psychedelics, and you've got this feedback excitation going up, when your when your hand moves across your field of vision and you've got that rapid change state, it doesn't it doesn't decay like it normally does. But the, the trajectory of the motion is fed back in your visual cortex multiple times,
2: hmm.
1: and it hangs there. It hangs there in visual space like a like an imprint on visual memory until it decays uh, slowly, you know, at a much slower rate than it normally does.
0: And this is how you get the sort of trail effect.
1: Right? That's how you get trail effect, that's how you get echo effect, mm. that's how you get phasic um, uh, audio distortion, like
0: Right, right. So it's not just visual, it's throughout all these other senses as well.
1: Yeah, right. And, and, and uh, you can get um, the same way that you can get kind of an optic distortion uh-huh. or delay on something. If you have the same kind of delay sensation, like uh, from somebody hitting your leg, Instead of you know feeling like an echo effect of, of, of that hit, which you might, a lot of people say that they re- they have the sensations replayed over and over again. Um, when somebody touches your leg, your your leg may actually feel much bigger than it actually is, or because because you're you're analyzing that data twice as much, you're getting you're kind of ballooning the information that's coming up into your mm-hmm. brain. Just like if you hear something odd, it may balloon in your brain and echo. Or if you're if you're sitting in a room that's got kind of a close edges around it, it may appear to like kind of close in on. Right. You. Uh Because because what you're looking at is ballooning, and that peripheral vision is kind of getting getting crunched in. Uh-huh.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And, and
1: it's it's you know, and I hate to break it all down to crude mechanics, but when you start to understand like the fluid the fluidity of the feedback in your brain because it's not all constant, it's this very mm-hmm. context-relative. Uh, you can kind of speed that up and slow that down when you get in that fluid state. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think, um, you know, this sort of idea of shamanic manipulation of mind states and mm-hmm. being able to pass through various levels of consciousness mm-hmm. of, is about, and that's kind of modulating this feedback excitation in your brain, whether you're, you know, uh, when you've got like massive feedback going on, The tiniest little stimulus can be painted over and over and over by your brain into a kaleidoscope in seconds, right? In milliseconds, really. You know, it can explode into your brain as as a fractal representation of itself that, you know, recedes over a period of many seconds, even minutes if you're like fully in a peak. Uh, so you could be listening to a piece of house music that stops. But the loop continues in your head. So, huh. yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Until somebody jostles you and says, hey, you know, the music's over. Get up and change. It. <laughs> right. And, and,
0: and, <laughs> and, you know, James, that, that image of the unfolding sort of imi- uh, fractal imagery is exactly as you described. Yeah. Because it just sort of unfolds and infolds on itself. You know?
1: Yeah. It becomes, yeah. Um, any, anything that you, you know, take the time to actually absorb in your sensory, what I call your sensory canvas suddenly becomes analyzed in a way that uh, line gets this ex- extreme filigree on it, to the point where you can even see tangential curves you know, bifurcating off of curves, right. when they're not even there. But your brain sort of paints those in as this, ah, yes, this is a logical place for this curve to bifurcate, because maybe that's the way it happens in nature, or right. that's the way it happens on a tree, or that's the way you know, your brain will paint in those, even if those pieces are missing. Amazing. It will find them and paint them in because this feedback excitation is demanding that you integrate the full picture hmm. before passing it forward
0: hey let me let me digress for just a moment and ask you a question that's sort of related to to this feedback thing mm-hmm. there There are people that oftentimes report like feeling very heavy, for mm-hmm. example yeah. is Is that sort of a representation mm-hmm. of the same thing?
1: It could be. I mean you, you get all kinds of contrasting stuff everybody who says they feel heavy, there's other people who feel like they're floating.
0: <laughs> right, right. They say so they get so, high. They float on. To almost. me,
1: it seems like the heaviness, There, there is a part of psychedelics, especially mushrooms and ayahuasca, um, where uh, when you take it and you're coming up and you're coming into the peak, you do feel very lethargic. You feel you feel tired. Hmm. You yawn a lot. It's kind of somatically overwhelming.
0: Yeah, the yawn, definitely.
1: Yeah, the yawn. and I, I definitely think the yawning and the somatic heaviness has to do with this. There's this intense remodulation that's going on in your brain as it's trying to ramp up to mm. to, to keep up with what's going on. That it really saps your physical it really huh. saps your physical energy because you're sort of you're trying to pool all that energy in your body to fuel the process that's going on in your brain. In your brain. Your brain is demanding all this energy, so your body kind of shuts down into this very catalytic state where it needs to actually process whatever it can into this, this event that is going to happen <laughs> in your brain because right. it takes a massive amount of energy when I'm talking about recurrent feedback excitation this doesn't happen in a vacuum it, when I, it, it the sensory stimulus can become self-sustaining only if the organ the brain is being fed with the nutrients it needs hmm. to sustain that process of consciousness hmm. so when you max out your juice basically when you max out all of your ATP and the ability to, 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 to actually keep up with the excitation that your brain is, is demanding, the process starts to break down and, and your neurons down-regulate because they can't get enough oxygen to keep the process going and, mm. and you come out of the peak and, and you're, you know, the drugs metabolize and you come down and that's kind of why you can't get back up and do a trip, a psychedelic trip, a really heavy psychedelic trip unless you take like a few days off or at least a week or a couple weeks mm. because not only do your, your neurons need to down-regulate from all of that activity because when they upregulate, they basically say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not going past a certain point, we're not going any faster, we're not getting any more excited than this. Um, And there is like a trip or burnout where after a few days of tripping really hard you can, you know, smoke and eat and take whatever drug you want and you're not going to get hot. You're just done until you sleep it off for a few days or you start eating again or whatever. That's because, um, you know, it, it really you know, it's like a workout. When people yeah. say, Man, it really worked me out, it's because there's a lot of physical motor activity that goes on in, in, in conscious processing. You know, it's not something that happens in this clean electrical you know, fiber optic channels. Right. It's like a lot of pumping and a lot of work and you really when I'm talking about recurrent foot feedback excitation I'm actually talking about rhythm in the brain. Hmm. You know, and you get rhythm that like compounds upon itself in this in this uh, almost machine like way you know it just chugs forward mm. and you can you know you can speed up the, the revolutions per second really fast and you've got extremely fast sort of manic psychotic completely breakthrough you know you completely white out the barrier between what's real and what's imaginary it becomes mm. kind of a big fluid canvas when your brain is just charged up so high but it can't sustain that forever you need to be Focused and really kind of like in the zone and very still to kind of keep that kind of power charged up in your brain. And the minute you start to, you know, sort of move around and get physical and and, uh, activate those motor processes and interact with the real world, that feedback process is perturbed. It's perturbed. So you kind of fumble out of it a little bit until you sit down and fuel yourself up with oxygen. And just let the process vroom, cycle back up. Right. And that's really how you control the state is by, you know, Movement. letting the cycle, you know, when people say, like, submit to the experience, they're really saying let the, let the excitation overtake your brain until you, like, pew, you know, until it's just, like, maxed out. And when it's maxed out is when you're, like, in this peak where it's, you know, this dream world that's completely fluid, interactive, morphic stuff. But the minute someone jostles you and says, hey, get up, we got to, you know, we're moving over to this side of the room, whatever, Um, you know, you you just shake yourself out of it, it, you know, and it just sort of dribbles away. And then when you go back down and sit, it it cycles back up. So it, it really is about sort of, you know, coordinating the rhythmic processes of your brain and body through feedback, through biofeedback, through feedback with other individuals. Through rhythmic feedback with music and singing and chanting Mm -hmm. and dancing, and um, you know, or or group activities, just sitting in a in a circle and humming and all vibing into the same level. And that's you know where this um, you know when I get get a little bit more metaphysical in other parts of the book that aren't online, Mm -hmm. where I I kind of play into this notion that if human beings, human brains are just oscillators, they can entrain to drivers like other oscillators, and when they entrain to other drivers. There 's this resonant circuit that creates like a, like an exponential power discharge, which is kind of what, what is a metaphysical way of describing what happens when you get this kind of group mind lock in uh, like tribal trance states or tribal ayahuasca states or even in rave states that i 've seen, although a lot of rave and uh, trance themes that i i I've, I've been in have this really low cap on how crazy the vibe gets mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean it gets crazy, but it doesn't it doesn't like go completely tribal yeah. over the edge yeah. some some of them I have have done that but uh but i I've noticed that there is like a communal baseline that everybody's comfortable at vibing, vibing at yeah. and um, but I, I think the more tribal you get the, the kind of crazier and more uh, intermingled people's thoughts
0: and I yeah, guess, no doubt. Um, <laughs> well hey, um let me ask you a real quick question about this: um, the group mind. Mm-hmm. What, what, do you, what, what, do you, what do you make about that? I mean, that's something that people that have experienced it say. Hey, there's no question about it. We were experiencing the same thing. And, okay. Well, uh, no. You know, two people it or way. more. So let's
1: put it this way: if you go to a movie theater and watch, uh, you know, whatever Blade Runner with mm-hmm. a whole bunch of other people, you guys are all experiencing the same thing. Right. And you're, you're pretty much having group mind. It's just not as mind blowing as it is when you're on psychedelics. Now, the thing the thing that psychedelics add to it is um, not only are you experiencing the actual experiencing, you're experiencing like many layers of subtext within the experience. I think that's what psychedelics bring to the picture. Uh, usually, when we're interacting with groups, um, we're we're only thinking on maybe one or two levels. We're thinking about the actual experience. And we're thinking you know maybe about what we might say to so and so later or uh, other things that you wanted to share, or you know you might have this little back and forth process going on in your brain, mm-hmm. but you're not analyzing every 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 you know facial tick and, and motivation behind everything everybody does in the entire group now some people say that's that's what women do, I think that's unfair because <laughs> you know maybe some do you know maybe some do maybe they maybe they all think like that, and that's why psychedelics are no big deal to them right. but um I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to make that assertion. But uh, I've 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 had some women. I've explained this to say, well, you know, I women do do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but when you get when you get this, um you know, you get this group mind, you really start to feel the people that you're with on a you know, on a more real level. You start to feel like, oh, the way so and so carries themselves. I just sort of thought they were slumpy before, but now I see that you know they've been wounded somehow, mm. and the reason they're carrying themselves like that is because somebody, you know, you sort of start to put together the pieces. Right. Somebody they trusted hurt them once, mm. and now they're vulnerable here, and you can just almost see that history on people. Mm. You know what I mean? Right. It's a, it, it, you you and and when you have that kind of like intuitive empathy, even if you're wrong, even if you're like wrong. The connection that you're feeling with that person is real, and this is something that, that has come up in studies that people have done on this is that a lot of times when people think that they're having like telepathic experiences and they're thinking the same things later on when they try to corroborate it and like in like actual trials they they were they were sort of misinterpreting the experience mm-hmm. All right. you know they were maybe they didn't they were thinking the same thing, but only after they had said they were. And previously, they were maybe thinking of slightly different things, so there was this convergence of thought that they all sort of came to and agreed upon. but it wasn't actually uh, telepathy in the fact that the you know they sort of remembered that they had the shared experience before they actually did you know but but I believe that there are cases where um, in group mind, the information that's passed is not literal information, hey, you know, you need to pick up the kids Tuesday at six thirty. Right. You know, it's not that kind of telepathy. It's more of a where are the where are the energy pockets in the group that need to be filled? Who's you know, who is feeling left out, hmm. who is, you know, who you know, what, it's it's more about the energy dynamic within the group. Within the group. Right. And all of that stuff is exposed, um, in this group mind thing. And whether you want to put it in literal terms like so-and-so was wounded by X or you just want to say so-and-so seems in need of repair right now. Let's focus our group energy on repairing mm-hmm. so-and-so. Right, okay. That's what group mind is all about. It's about this kind of group problem solving and letting the, the, the pockets where the energy needs to flow appear organically. Mm-hmm. right? So, okay. so it, it becomes literally a manipulation of, uh, you know, there's there's excess energy here and there's not enough here. Let's right. all balance it out and channel it so we're all in the same vibe and feeling good. Right, I mean, so that's just how unity. I mean, that's how tribes maintain unity right. and, and keep that infighting thing from from throwing them apart. Huh.
0: So, you, it's, so it's just a matter of recognizing where it's needed and then focusing it there. Or, it's
1: or, it's almost not. A, I mean, the the thing is with psychedelics is they it, it, they naturally expose. I think they hmm. naturally expose these imbalances, and that's why they're so good in psychotherapy because. They expose kind of repressed stuff that you may not even be conscious of in a way that makes you go, oh shit, <laughs> how could I have not remembered that I've been forgetting this thing for so long? Mm. You know, because repression is an active thing. You actively need to repress something and you need to build new pathways and sort of move around that thing because there's, there's, there's shame or there's hurt or there's some emotion that's, that you don't want to go to that's attached to that feeling or that, that, that thought. In psychedelics, it's almost like that is an attractor for the psychedelic. It just here's a pathway that has, you know, that's in need of some nurturing. That's atrophying. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna blow through it, and you blow through it like ah. <laughs> but once you, you know, once you pass through that shame or that hurt or reliving that memory, you start to realize that you know it's not as bad, you know, especially if there's been time between things that, that have gone on. you know, forgiveness is really a matter of just being able to uh, you know, accept the bad things that have been done to you yeah. as just the way things are. And um, as far as the cathartic abilities of psychedelics to do that, to kind of weasel their way in through the cracks, find where the need is and kind of open it up and blow it out and shine light. I, I, you know, some shamans call it like shining light in the shadows right. or sweeping out the cobwebs. Mm-hmm. Or um, you know, I've heard some, some like, like mystic healer types describe it as, you know, cleaning the chakras or opening up the energy field and letting the white light pour through and refreshing the aura. All of these these things are just you know, metaphors for cleansing.
2: Hmm. You know,
1: cleaning house. Right. right and right. Um, that's why there's there's purging. That's why there's you know, sort of this, this releasing of negative energy. It's all part of cleansing and cleansing can be dirty I mean really there's a lot of messy stuff that goes on in cleansing right, and that's t- one that's one reason why a lot of people especially in western culture are freaked out by psychedelics because they don't like to touch the messy they don't like to touch the messy it's just not you know people are pathologically avoidant of the messy hmm. stuff and, and the more you not, they'd rather not open up the lid on the garbage can and see what's
0: in there. Right, and the more and the more, <laughs> and the more you avoid it, the messier it gets. So. Kind
1: of, yeah. You can put it that way. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you want to get completely metaphysical about it, I mean, cancer is just repression that bubbles up somewhere it's not supposed to. Hmm. Um, that's one way you can look at it, uh, but uh, that's a little, you know, psychosomatic for me. Right. But right. you know, you can have that kind of repression that just kind of festers and gets worse the more it. The more
0: it stays hidden. Okay. Hey, l- let me clarify one thing real quick, and then we'll take a take a break here for a second, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it was really interesting when you were talking before about the brain sort of reaching exhaustion, as opposed to, you know, it seems to me that there's sort of a misunderstanding. A lot of people think that sort of the drug just sort of runs out or whatever.
1: There's two there's two things going on. Um, Brain exhaustion happens after a period of many hours, mm-hmm. but if there is if there is still drug in your system, you will continue to have like um, a really border I mean a really baseline trip. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you I mean if you continue doing LSD, you will continue to keep tripping. You just need to take more LSD to right. maintain that baseline trip. You're eventually going to have to sleep, which is which is neural exhaustion. Right. Which is another thing. Another case of neural exhaustion. But to maintain that peak, when I'm talking about when when neurons are maximally discharging, and you've got this fluid holographic space that you can hold in your consciousness like that, that peak, you know, you have to think of it. Think of it like you know, sprinting barefoot on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon. (laughs) You only want to do it once. You know, a week. You know, you really got to train for it, <laughs> right. and if you fall, it's a messy fall. You oh, know, man. and you, you need to have your friends come and pull you out, basically. Right. So your brain doesn't go. Your brain can't handle that space for too long. Mm. You can, you know, you can sprint across it, but when the sprint is done, you're you're kind of dumped out of it. Right. Don't dump, dump. Right. right. And and milking more out of your brain is is really not. It's going to be diminishing returns until you can actually
0: recharge.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. All right, sounds good. Wow. All right, well, cool. James, hang on just a second, okay? Sure. We will take a short break here. My guest is James Kent. Information and much, much uh, work can be found at www.tripzine.com. What's up with the magazine, uh, James? We'll have to talk uh, a little bit about... You want to talk about my, that after the break? Yeah, we'll do that after the break. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, great stuff uh, at tripzine.com, and, and James has been uh, involved with the psychedelic magazine uh, business for many, many years, so maybe we'll chat a little bit about that as we go. But anyway, back in this a few with James Kent, and uh, this is Mike you listen to Radio Orbit. We'll play another song here from Eskimo. This song is called Cross Hatches. And uh, you can find Brendan at www.eskmo.com. All right, back in just a minute with James Kent. This is Mike, you're to Radio Orbit. That's Crosshatches from Eskimo. You're listening to Radio Orbit. This is Mike Hagan. My guest is James Kent. You can find information about James and uh, the work and research that he does at www.tripzine.com. And there's lots of other information there as well. And uh, I think we'll ask James quickly a little bit about the website and his uh, experiences in the magazine business. However, James, before I lose it, I just got an email. Uh, from a listener who who has a question about uh, shamanism. So d- just I'm, we'll, I'll ask you that after we just talk real quick about the website. And let you... uh, so anyway, um, you ran psychedelic illuminations for a long time.
1: Oh, um, I didn't actually run it. I was the editor of psychedelic illuminations. Okay, okay. I uh, I met the publisher Ron Piper when I went to okay. a seeds of change conference in San Francisco to interview Terrence McKenna. When was that? Ninety one, I think. Okay. I think the... <sighs> 93 maybe,
0: okay, early 90s. All right. <laughs>
1: yeah, um, and uh, uh, this is at a time when uh, this is sort of pre-internet. I had internet access, but I was maybe one of the few people who I knew who did. And I was, you know, contacting everybody I could find in the psychedelic quote-unquote community mm-hmm. to talk to because I figured that there must be some experts out there that. That could settle this for me, right? Because this was sh- this was shortly a few few years after my initial experience with LSD. I and again,
0: off- this this was just you trying to figure out what the hell was going on.
1: Yeah, this is just me acting as a lone individual, um, trying to get answers. To, you know basically a pharmacological question I had. Right, right okay how
0: right so you go to the McKenna yeah. brothers yeah
1: okay. so I go to McKenna and I go you know I track down Leary and I, I track down uh, John Lilly and I talked to a lot of people but McKenna was one of the first people that I talked to mm-hmm. and at this conference I met a guy named Ron Piper who was selling his magazine there and I and you know I had just come out of school with a writing a degree in writing and had worked an intern for a variety of magazines in the area and I thought You know, if you're going to do a magazine in this area, you might as well, you know, put some real effort into making it cool. Because he was just putting out something that was Xerox on colored paper, Uh and you know, the the printing really wasn't that great. And just, you know, having worked on professional magazines, I was thinking, God, this is just, you know,
0: below par. It
1: could be much better.
0: And you'd already been through Asia and all this stuff, right?
1: Yeah, this is after I had come out of my travel thing. Actually, I was still doing that. I was still doing that for about a year. There was a lot of overlap between the time I was working at psychedelic illuminations and doing travel writing for another magazine. Mm -hmm. So I was like, like my my mind. I was in the magazine mind space, uh, traveling and writing, traveling, tripping and writing, uh, (laughs) you know, scoring drugs and. Other countries, just you know, for the for the fun of it, really, it was more sort of a challenge than anything else. But, but uh, yeah, I was I, I I did some weird writing assignments, and psychedelic illuminations was kind of an extension of that. And uh, Ron Piper was not the most stable individual, and would get in and out of trouble, and had some problems maintaining his residence. And it was sort of a fly-by-night operation. And after you know going through a lot of headaches for many issues, I quit. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. But he really couldn't find anybody to do what I was doing <laughs> right. for him. So it all sort of fell apart. Mm-hmm. And there were many attempts to revive it and it never never happened. Okay. But since I had an email address and people knew how to get in contact with me, a lot of the subscribers who were coming online were saying, hey, if you put out another magazine, I would subscribe to it. Oh, so
0: that's when you started trip, I just
1: started doing TRIP as mm-hmm. sort of like this thing. Where I said, okay, 250 people are willing to subscribe. Let's do the math and figure out how we can launch this, and we did it, and it worked for you know about five issues. But uh, we had a distributor that was kind of pushing us to grow faster than we wanted to, and we wound up overprinting on a couple runs and wasting a lot of magazines. Right, and
0: people don't pay for them, and that sort of yeah,
1: thing. Yeah, and um, they wanted faster schedules and we were doing this part time and really not sleeping at night, trying to finish all the work and <laughs> it sort of it sort of broke down after I had my first child, I didn't really have much time, just I couldn't do those late nights mm. anymore. It became like my sanity was falling apart. Right. And my good friend Scott Moore, known as Scotto, kind of came in and and rescued Trip for maybe three years, another another three or four issues, and we had kind of a second run where T R P was renamed as Trip. All right. And that's kind of when the website came about. When we decided to, you know, start kind of experimenting with what kind of content we could roll over on the website, as opposed to actually killing dead trees.
0: Yeah, and the website turns out to be such a great vehicle. You know?
1: Yeah. And uh, we, you know, I would, I would love to continue doing the magazine. And financially, we were just sort of trying, figuring out how to make it work, where we could actually make money and, and keep our audience at the level we liked and keep our schedule at the way we liked. But it really, it really is, is so much work, and the payoff is so so minimal. And holding it all together is kind of like, it's kind of like holding a rock band together, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a lot <laughs> so, of effort. Especially since you know, there's a lot of people who come in and out, who are kind of flaky and not really reliable, and say, oh yeah, 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 I'm going to do all this, and then stuff falls through. So independent and in- indie zine publishing is really uh, uh, a trick to pull off. Right. I, I feel lucky that I was able to make trip Go as far as it did. Right. We were always thinking that you know it could it could you know reach kind of critical mass where it makes that mondo jump. Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah. And um, we could never figure out what the to- what the next tone would be because we had this joke that the magazine reinvents itself every five issues. <laughs> so and we were going to change it from trip to something else, and you know, we were always going to re- you know we were always thinking of yeah we'll do it bigger, we'll do it you know a little more broader based, a little more hipper, and uh, you know little bit more absurd but still keep the cool stuff in there. And it never it never gelled that that we could never gel a core group around that vision of, of selling out, I guess what it was. <laughs> the next level was we need to sell out to make this work. Right. And it never People just, you know, have too much other stuff to do. <laughs> yeah. It's,
0: it's, it, and these, uh, it, it's funny that, you know, the, the the whole subject of the psychedelics and stuff, I always think that, you know, when it hits the mainstream, well, well then our work is done. You
1: know, it's Pretty like, much. Yeah. <laughs> so, and, you know, it just seems, you know, but when we started the magazine, arrowid was, you know, there was the lithium and there was Aeroid, right, and right. those things were,
2: were not
1: filling this need that we wanted. But now there's, there's you know, a lot of stuff out there that's, that's kind of weird. I mean, me and a, a few other people who uh, worked on trips still kind of reminisce about about bringing it back, mm-hmm. and you know, the only the only thing stopping it from coming back is you know, a group of people who really want to work long hours at, right. uh, at a job like that. Right. That has uh, you know the rewards are when you get get <laughs> you get mail that says you. Rock and it's got like a bud in it. So that's your payoff, basically. You get free CDs, and every once in a while you get a bud. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, um, okay, well, that's cool. That's magazine stuff. Let me get back to this this young man's question, okay? Sure. And I'll I'll actually quote him here. He says, What has the knowledge of shamanism done to change your understanding of the psychedelics? botanicals in particular?
1: Um, Well, knowledge of shamanism is a pretty broad subject, but um, what it it boils down to when you're talking about shamanism and psychedelics and plants is uh, is, uh, the notion of tapping into a plant spirit or a plant entity or um, some kind of a spirit metaphor of the plant that you can actually speak to and get knowledge from. Mm Mm-hmm. And I call that, you know, a modality of psychedelic use. If you want to uh, take a psychedelic and uh, commune with a plant, essentially is what you're talking about when you're talking about psychedelic shamanism or ethnoconical anthrop- shamanism, you're essentially communing with a plant through the, through the, the ritual of, in, of ingesting it okay. and sometimes bathing yourself in it and surrounding yourself with its essence, maybe burning it. Mm-hmm. Um, and ingesting it in this brew, this psychedelic brew that kind of activates your brain. So you're getting, a, you're, you're really sort of just, just, just covering yourself, you're saturating yourself with the essence of this plant until you can visualize in your mind the anthropomorphized embodiment of that plant. So the spirit of the plant will manifest in front of you in physical form. Sometimes in human form, sometimes in animal form, sometimes it's just, plant itself consciously talking to you sometimes just a voice sometimes just a feeling that the plant has crept into you um, you know shamans talk about being like enveloped by fire by like really hot plants or uh, you know crept into like vines mm-hmm, with, mm-hmm. With, with creeping plants um, and it's not speci- it's not I mean it mostly it's plants but there's also animal shamanism where they commune with animals and they take the they they a shape shift or or they okay. remote view through the eyes of animals flying over the jungle or running through the jungle. And the animals you know, and always, always there is the the end result of the plant or animal spirit showing you something. Revealing some deep secret to you. Like you've stumbled into the heart of creation and now your secret wish is being fulfilled. Here it is, here's a peek. Okay. and now you're done. And so that's that's the shamanic modality. Is that there's a there's a quest, there's a spirit guide, and then there's some reveal at the end that gives you the answer that you're looking for. Maybe if not the answer, then something that sort of brings you back around to to uh, you know what you were thinking about in the first place, a more a more crystallized vision of what it is you were looking for in the first place. I think is the way some people put it. And uh, yeah, so that's the shamanic modality, and what I learned from that. Is um, that all of that stuff is more or less true? You know, uh, psychedelics enable you to do that, and you don't really need a whole lot of training to figure it out. You just need to understand the ritual and surround yourself with the plant or the or the, or the uh, you know the iconography of, of the thing that you want to inhabit or you want to to commune with. Okay. So you know. It's really part of this deeper understanding where you where you allow something to completely saturate you sensorially until it consumes you in, a, in like a you know like a fractal hologram of itself <laughs> hmm. and you just try to feel intuitively what it's all about
2: right.
1: and um, I have never personally learned anything from a, from a plant spirit that I thought was earth moving hmm. but it definitely has opened my eyes to the way plants think, which is kind of a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah. But there is a very subtle wisdom to it that you know everything is is simple but profound, right. and truth is kind of undeniable in that sense, in that realm. And um, logic and biology are really uh, very very intelligent systems. I mean, biology is a very very intelligent system. Uh, botany. Plants are very, very intelligent systems that have adapted um, over long periods of time to sustain themselves and their ecosystems. Uh, so, there's a lot to be learned from plants. I guess is what you can say. Uh, if you can't just dis- dismiss what the shaman says as fruity, even though they may be making, um, you know, sort of quasi-religious leaps of faith that these spirits actually exist, or are they just sort of hallucinatory constructs that they create out of their
0: knowledge. Yeah, that, that's a question somewhere. that always seems to be open and, almost.
1: And it, to me, it it seems like there's, there's almost both there hmm. because what is the difference between a plant spirit and a fully formed hallucinatory construct of a plant spirit that you can interact with yeah. in a way that is not, that you cannot really foresee. I mean, if you tried to do it sober, you wouldn't be able to get the responses you got from the plant spirit when you were when you were under the influence, because it becomes, you know, it, it becomes externalized. It becomes right. another part of you. Now, that's to me, it seems like the plant spirit cannot exist without the human there to actually fully realize it. Mm, makes sense. You know, the plant spirit itself is sort of just, it sort of is, you know, and it doesn't really need to anthropomorphize like that. It doesn't need a personality and it doesn't need a voice. But when you want to interact with it, it does, mm. and it's up to you to build that interface in your brain. But once you build that interface with your in that, that interface with the plant logic in your brain, that hallucinatory construct becomes like a gateway to the plant mm, knowledge. I see. You know, it doesn't matter if it re- if it's real, if it exists out there in the in the ether, right, or I mean. whether you're creating it in your mind. Mm. The knowledge that you're downloading is still valid. It's still you know a valid representation of reality. Hmm. Even if the even if the interface that it passes through is you know ambiguous, yeah. ontologically ambiguous. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah, well, because yeah. it is real. I mean, if you could actually light it up under an MRI and get and get it, it's real in your brain, but transitory, fleeting. Hmm.
0: Well, it's interesting because you one of the one of the earlier parts that you actually have on the web of of psychedelic uh, information theory. There's there's a section called delusion versus reality.
2: Yeah, and,
0: and 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 on the validity of the whole experience or whatever and that that always seems to be sort of not have closure or something it's like how as you say but is it is it almost splitting hairs i mean it's really not that big of a deal if the effect is still the same
1: well it is splitting hairs to a point because you can learn a lesson from plant spirit without necessarily having to make the leap into saying this plant spirit that i communed with is a god and we now must worship it and I'm going to make rules about how we worship it and I'm going to share that dogma with other people uh-huh. as fact. This is the way it is because I experienced it. So when you have this metaphysical experience that sort of crystallizes into dogma, basically, is what happens when people try to share that experience with others. Uh-huh. If that dogma catches on, it becomes systemic belief and then it becomes organized religion and then you've got a whole lot of problems because uh-huh. people start using that to impose morality on people. Uh-huh. And the, and the original mystical vision is lost in the, in the dogmatic translation. So, I, I need to be really careful here when, when we're discussing subjective reality or realities that are ontologically ambiguous, because you have to recognize them as such. But just because, just because you know they're quote-unquote real, doesn't mean we need to bow down before them. Right. You know, right. we control them just as much as they control us. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a give-and-take there. And I think even the shaman will tell you that. The shaman will tell you that, that the shaman does have power in the relationship with the plant spirit. It's not like a subjective thing, like this is a god you must obey. Um, you know, The shaman fully realizes his own potential within the space, or at least an adept shaman should be able to do that.
0: Well, what, what about this whole deal of, sh- of shamanism? There's... You know, there are a lot of people that run around and say, well, I'm a shaman.
1: Yeah, I write about this in my book, and I think what it comes down to is, um, you know, a shaman is like a technician, mm-hmm. okay? Um, a shaman kind of...
0: Or a magician.
1: It's is sort of like a magician, correct. You know, a shaman needs to be very deft and fast and skilled and be able to, to you know, manipulate a crowd and manipulate his own mind really rapidly, and um, I think a lot of, a lot of the hangups people get into in psychedelics is they can't roll with it fast enough. You know there's a lot of transition happening and a lot of stuff happening very fast. Mm. And you need to be able to you know pick up the vibe really quick and, and kind of capitalize it, capitalize on it and, and, and ramp it up into something more than what it is. Mm. And there's a really skilled process of kind of bootstrapping the experience up into the state where everything is just you know gelling like you want it to. And that you know, and that's a real sort of proactive mastery over the experience. That is something more than just you know, yeah, I do a lot of mushrooms and listen to Pink Floyd, or my friends and I like to do mushrooms and run around in the woods, or we like to drop acid and you know, Mister Dare, or whatever people do, you know, that that is is sort of playing with the space. You know, there's a lot of playing with the space, sort of dabbling and playing with it, and you know, going heavy metal with it, and, and You know, getting as deep and as dark and as gnarly as you can get. Right. But people really don't kind of understand what they're doing. They're sort of intuitively picking these things up and learning how to how to power play with it. Mm. A shaman kind of learns from the ground up that this is what they're doing, and um, really kind of respects the place. And and uh, you know, there can be nice shamans who use the toolbox to do very good, nice healing things and community good grooviness. And there can be very evil shamans who manipulate things always to their own end, Mm. and they're trying to one up people and use black magic and hate magic and Mm. and whatever. But the difference between, like, just a casual tripper and a shaman is that a shaman kind of knows that the experience is ambiguous and it can play both ways, Mm -hmm. right? And being able to walk that line and say, yes, I'm in the imaginary spirit realm and know I'm grounded in reality and I'm actually controlling the experience from the other side. Being able to kind of, you know, do that tight, that balancing act and hold it all together without losing it. Because losing it is just, you know, it's a, it's part of, it's a occupational hazard. You know, if you do too much or you get in the wrong situation, you just... Yeah, you lose, it. <laughs> you lose it. Yeah, you just can't keep cohesion. You just become a battling mess. And, uh, you know the, the shaman really kind of knows how to avoid those traps and i'm not even saying that that i am a shaman i just i just think i understand what shamans do mm. you know what i mean right, right. Be, you know knowing what they do and being able to reproduce it is a very okay. a very tough gig okay. you know i can look at a at a, a concert pianist or a guitar virtuoso and say oh yeah i know how they're doing that right, right. but to do it and to hold a crowd and to wield that magic is something that you know, it takes practice. I'm, I'm sure some people are born with it, or kind of born with the gift, and mm. other people can kind of fumble their way through it. Uh, I kind of seem to be more of a fumbler who can like maintain short periods of mastery, but uh, you know, I'm not like a full-on. I don't really have the desire to go full-on into the really? spirit realm all the time and just kind sort of um, you know be that conduit like like shamans need to. Mm. They, you know, they have a need to be that conduit, and I. You know, I've been the conduit before, and it's uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, it's too
1: much power sometimes. hmm. There's kind of ethical problems that go along with it when you realize that you know you're the puppet master in a situation, Hmm. and people are at your mercy. Um, Really, not that I, you know. Ever willingly put myself in that position, but when people kind of expect you to be the person who knows more about what's going on when things are really shaky, <laughs> right. it's easy to manipulate that, or even forget that you're manipulating it and just mm. start kind of winging it, <laughs> and things, you know, get dangerous and out of control. And,
0: and you may, yeah, and you say something maybe that's not as valid as you somebody might take it as, or something.
1: Yeah, and so um, a, a lot of times, uh, what 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 are engineered as recreational trips, turn into these shamanic throwdowns where somebody is in need of healing or somebody is having a freakout or uh, you know uh, things are, are getting really bumpy and nobody's sure what to do about it. Uh, there's, there's a certain point where you can just sort of collapse away from the experience, uh, which is I think what people tend to do. they kind of fold into themselves. Or you can jump up and engage the experience and become really active. Mm -hmm. And doing that is, is, uh, you know, there's something kind of magical to it, which can be really captivating or really creepy, depending on the context. So, um, you know, people who really kind of cast themselves in a shaman role need to understand the, the importance of context, which is why I think, you know, DJs became so famous for a while, is because they were, they were preachers who, who ultimately said nothing, but they had a good baseline. <laughs> and, and, you know, people were ready to uh-huh. bow down to preachers who had no agenda other than to throw down the fat groove, uh-huh. because that's really what people were looking for, is somebody uh-huh. who could actually lay down that groove and hold it uh-huh. for a crowd uh-huh. without the dogma. Very interesting. But, of course, the crowd develops their own dogma, and that's where things like plur come from. Uh-huh. There was this sort of raver unity or this idealized. Concept of how a raver needs to live, the raver morality,
0: Right. the raver how the code.
1: Who can't hang with raver moralities are all jerks, you know, huh. and and they get the sense of, of institutionalized righteousness almost. Uh, when really it was all about just maintaining that that good vibe where everybody could sink in together, right. and uh, and you know kind of get that sense of unity that's lacking in other parts of their lives.
0: You know, All right, look, yeah, hey, uh, let you know, me. Which
1: comes back to the healing aspect, and that's
0: right, another Part of shamanism, right? The central, a central part of shamanism.
1: Well, yeah, central. I mean, there is a dark side of shamanism where you can, you know, make yeah. people go crazy. You know, okay. cast spells on them, or you know, do your voodoo. Right. Sorcery. Yeah, sorcery. Yeah. I suppose you can
0: say. That. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, James, let me do a quick ID here. It's Mike Hagen, Radio Orbit, just a little after one o'clock. And about 11 o'clock in Seattle, Washington where I'm speaking with uh, James Kent. And uh, hello let's get on with it. Yeah, I, I see now, uh, James, this uh, words of caution to the would-be shaman. This is, this is another section of the book here. All right. All right. Yeah,
1: yeah I basically say that shamanism in, an, in a society uh, that's comfortable with its prohibition is sort of absurd. Huh. Basically, you get a lot of amateurs and sketchy wannabes and uh, people who are really good at it need to be really careful because you know they're one mistake away from being busted
2: Hmm, what do you mean by that
1: well i mean if you want to practice shamanism in in america and call yourself a shaman Mm -hmm. and you're treating people with hallucinogenic drugs it's i mean who first of all who are you treating and why are you treating them and what is the pretext and what is the context because, you know, if you're giving people schedule one drugs without a license and you're kind of, you know, manipulating them or doing ad hoc psychotherapy without a license, Mm. the fact that you studied with the Weechel Indians in Mexico doesn't really mean anything. Right. (laughs) If somebody wants to file charges against you for some kind of misconduct or something that went awry or somebody's in. You know, somebody's brother, sister says you've been drugging up my brother, or somebody's mother says you've been drugging up my kids and brainwashing them. You're a cult leader. Hmm. You're giving them peyote or whatever. Right. What your shamanic cure is. You're hung out. I mean, you're really the, you really, you really haven't been nothing. You have no support group. There's no, there's nothing in our society which kind of makes this a legitimate thing. Although the, the Supreme Court did just recently rule that use of ayahuasca for religious use right. is is okay.
0: Right, yeah, that that, that, uh, that church from Brazil. Or
1: yeah, what? it was the Unio de Vahetal. And uh, they're one of three major ayahuasca religions that have kind of crept up north of the border that are active all over the world now. And I think ayahuasca religions are, you know, just a, a natural progression from... Uh, you know what we have here mm. in America—the the religious institutions that we have in America—fused with the, the traditional tribal ayahuasca ceremony. Mm. Mm. You know, I'm not really down with their dogma. I don't. I've, I've sat in on ceremonies that are very powerful, but you know, I know how I know how how easily manipulated the psychedelic space can be mm. uh, to be whatever you want it to be. So, um, I've known people who were very Christian who enjoy doing psychedelics because it, it it gets them in touch with Christ consciousness, which mm. is what these syncretic churches are doing basically they're taking Catholic iconography like the Virgin Mary right, and, right. and uh, Jesus the innocent and they're kind of like um it's sort of like a, it's like a cross between christianity sh- uh, ayahuasca ayahuascaro shamanism and Haitian voodoo huh.
0: How does the Voodoo come into
1: the thing? Well, because in Voodoo cults, they really try to um, open up their bodies as vessels where their loas, their spirit elders, inhabit their body and animate through their form. This is like a, this is like a big power of, of the Voodoo ritual is being able to, to animate the loa and and uh, become. And this, you know, goes back to that. This is what the Hindus. We're doing back in the Rig Veda. This is nothing new, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but this is, it's, you know, I sort of put voodoo in it because I think they do a lot of the same thing where they they, they literally try to have the spirit of, of Virgin Mary infuse them so they can they can you know speak with the the, the innocent, but they can see through the innocent eyes um, and have that have you know gain strength from the from the icon and. Uh, you know, to me, one part of me says, you know, whatever it's, you know, people have whatever beliefs they want to believe. But another part of me thinks that, you know, it's just another strange cult that <laughs> has a different technology than the other cults. They're just using a different form of brainwashing than other cults do. So you have to. I mean, I always look at it both ways. I'm skeptical of any organized religion that uses a psychedelic sacrament. Not that they aren't very nice people, because they always are. I've never met anybody in any of these groups or religions that has been anything other than 100% earnest and very, right. very reverent about what they do and just, you know, a believer. But there's also this kind of, this sort of wild eyedness.
0: <laughs> you know, it's weird because, you know, it just seems to pop up anytime you have a large group. I mean, even, I mean, you're just mentioning a little while ago, even in the rave culture, you get something that was so benign and, 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 and uh, you know well thought out and well intentioned and you still get some of that that pops up
1: mm-hmm.
0: so yeah i agree with you i mean anywhere you get these institutionalized things it's sort of dangerous i guess the lesson is to do it on your own
1: well i don't think that's well but do it on your own is a is i think a good way to uh you know you need to be you need to be uh be like a Columbus to do it on your own, right? You need to be able to explore and have the courage to go back if you like run into a wall or something. Um, and not a lot of people have that strength to really make the trip. There are a lot of people who are really much more comfortable in a shamanic setting and would would gladly fly to the Amazon and go and hang out in the jungle with the with the shaman and do the whole thing mm-hmm. and get the full experience. Gosh, I don't know. You know, and be and be really powerfully taken over by that experience. But they're really sort of a passive player in the game at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, they get themselves there, which is a big part of the journey. But but after that, they put their hands and they put their, themselves in the hands of the shaman. Right. And there's that implicit trust that people going over there, that's what they're going to do. What I'm going to do when I get there is I'm going to do what the shaman tells me. They may not be thinking that, you know, in their head. But that's, you know, they're going there to have somebody play voodoo doctor on their head. Wow. <laughs> you know yeah. why else do you do that right so you go out there because you have something some need and the voodoo doctor takes care of it and you feel great and go home and money well spent you know but hopefully to, but to <laughs> then say but to then say this is my new religion right everybody needs to do this that's taking a step you know people mm-hmm. need to 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 graduate in their own time
0: Right. I mean, some people go to a doctor. I mean, an allopath, you know what I mean? And, sure. and, and they come out healed. And, and you know, the, the holopath might say, wouldn't agree with that. Maybe.
1: It's like, you know, I've had some amazing, amazing transformational experiences at Grateful Dead shows. I mean, uh-huh. Talk about group mind and interaction with strangers. Right. I've it's heard like just amazing beyond belief and just like this, everyone's on the same vibe and chilling, and it's just perfect and you can freak out and everyone kind of freaks out with you and it's all fun and everybody understands the game. But I never became a deadhead. Huh. I thought people who did become deadheads were kind of, you know, it's like, oh, uh, it's like, you know,
0: yeah, just like you say, yeah. it's,
1: you know, it's like, okay, you have a really great orgasm at the end of sex, but does orgasm need to become your church? You know, it's like, it's like, yes, this is just another powerful experience. In a sea of human powerful experiences, mm-hmm. you don't you don't need to create a whole lifestyle around mm-hmm. the event. Mm-hmm. And I'm always suspect of people who try to create a lifestyle around the event because the event itself should be a catalyst for other things. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's not the end itself; it's a means to an end. Mm-hmm. And when the event becomes the end, it's like, okay, well, what are you actually accomplishing again? <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 really weird because religion takes it sort of saps all the fun out
0: of mysticism. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? <laughs> all right, James, hey, let's uh take another break here, okay? Sure. We'll come back in uh just a few minutes. We've got about 40 more with my guest. His name is James Kent. You can find information about James at www.tripzine.com. There's lots of interesting things to read over there. And you can also link to a couple of his papers and things over at my website as well. So we'll come back in just a minute, and we'll speak with James a little bit more. And in the meantime, we'll take about five minutes here and play another song by Eskimo. This song is called In the Park. And we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. more from Eskimo it's called in the park this is Mike you're listening to Radio Orbit my guest is James Kent he's been gracious enough to spend his Monday night with us and we've got another 40 minutes or so with him and uh, James I got another note here on the website actually on the on the on the chat um, a question that I might uh, pose to you here and um, he or she I'm not sure says I thought psychedelics were supposed to minimize ego. Why did I think I was going to save the world? (laughs) So, Uh, and the reason I read this is because I've actually had, uh, you know, sort of messianic visions before, too. So what's that all
1: about? Well, okay. In a psychedelic state, everything seems to be amplified. Mm -hmm. So um, if you happen to obsess or latch on to something hellish, for instance. Okay. You could be catapulted into something hellish oh. to the point where a demonic entity may even materialize and like try to shred you limb from limb mm-hmm. because of something that you may have, have felt, uh, sort of a passing emotion. Uh, by the same response, I mean by the same token, if you happen to uh, get into that, that messianic headspace, even something really simple, like thinking about Jesus, will cause you to kind of manifest that that messianic infusion. And uh, a lot of people find that messianic space really intoxicating. So it's really easy to bliss out on it and go to this really kind of crazy delusion of grandeur level where... You are the Messiah, and you are going to change the world, and your message will be taken seriously by the first person that you talk to about it. And as long as there's no one there to pierce that, that illusion bubble, that can become reality mm. for you know, many minutes, you know, if not for a, a, the, the whole duration of a trip. Right. Um, typically when this happens, it's because somebody is by themselves, and, and they're having some hidden revelation where, where our voices are talking to them. Or they're just infused with a knowledge that can't possibly be their own because it's so complex and profound, huh. right? So they uh, they associate it with a higher power speaking through them.
0: Yeah, that's a claim that happens often, right? In other words, that's one of the. I mean, that was that has always been one of the main questions about you know the psychedelics: is it me, or is it in the drug, or is it somehow a key way that opens well, up for to
1: me? What I what I, to, the way I think of it is: it's you turned up to eleven? You know, basically, right. <laughs> you've got a scale of, of what your brain is capable of conceiving of. And, um, you know, if you want to put everyday reality at maybe five and dreaming, you know, we don't, we'll max out at ten in certain states. And maybe, like, if, you, if you've just had a traumatic incident, like a car crash or something, and you're, like, totally ramped up on adrenaline and everything is just going super hyper slow because you're completely wired, that may be a ten, right? Mm-hmm. But then when you push that up to eleven... Things just go off the off the scale, right? You, you're, you, whatever you happen to be zoning on, whatever you happen to be thinking about, gets ballooned to extreme proportions. It starts to to grow exponentially. The longer that you can actually sit and dwell on it, so the longer you sit and look at a rock or the or the skin on the back of your hand, the more your brain will deconstruct it down to the absolute root level. And when and when people start to actually uh, kind of like Rock their own divinity, like the own the the own uh, grace of their biological organ, the the spirit that infuses them. Uh That's kind of you know Christ consciousness is the way Westerners perceive that, and to then take the leap from I'm feeling Christ consciousness to I am Christ (laughs) is just a really small leap. You know, especially when the space that you're in has no boundaries. You know, there's nobody there to say, "No, you're not, no, you're not right? right." So, so when you're alone, it's a lot. Or, or even if you don't vocalize it, a lot of people will feel it and not vocalize it, and then they'll explode inappropriately at the wrong. time. <laughs> you know, a lot of people. Some sometimes uh, uh, people will just throw off their clothes and just. Just demand that they are Christ and run out into the street to let everybody know.
2: That's pretty funny. You
1: know, and that's like really embracing it. That's like, wow, how do you get to that level? I don't know. I've never like freaked out to that, but I've heard that that particular incident report many times.
0: Well, that maybe that's what our listener here. <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: and and you know, the stripping off of the clothes is basically that losing of the identity. It's like I'm no longer my former self. I'm no longer this illusion of persona, you know, that this that I craft out of the fashion that I wear and the way I I wear my hair or whatever. You know, that's all gone. Now I'm free and I'm I'm living in the moment with, you know, this 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 unity with all beings. And once people see that see that I'm free and I'm unified, they'll all want to be free and unified too, just like me. You know, that's the thinking. No, it didn't work that way, though. <laughs> that was Leary's whole rant, you know, if he could just get enough people turned on and free, you know, free thinking, in this hippie revolution, where people were free to throw off their clothes, and, you know, call for the unity of all people, and it wasn't crazy talk. It was just like, yeah, man, that's speaking the truth. That was kind of Leary's vision, it was right, like, yes, right. when you get all these people turned on, you're going to have this revolution where people are free, and humanity is freed from these these constructs, these illusory constructs that we call ego and the self and society and culture. But, you know, civilization relies on these illusionary constructs. They're the interface for the way people interact with each other. And when you're free of that, you're sort of like, society doesn't know what to do with you. Right. <laughs> they just want to lock you up because you're annoying everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know... Uh-huh. People just jump the gun because they're so I mean, it just overtakes them. the adrenaline of the moment overtakes them, and they just feel like they can change it all. and they, they can just channel they can channel the power and be that conduit. But then you know being able to take that message to the to the people uh, usually involves the crafting of some dogma hmm. and the fabricating of of the mystical experience into. An actual, you know, you build a narrative. Oh yes, I was speaking and I talked to God and God said, "This is the message that I'm spreading now." Mm -hmm. And suddenly you have to have the wrap that people will understand, and that's when things just fall apart. Mm -hmm. Instead of people just saying, you know, "Hey, have the experience for yourself, have the unity experience, you know, touch the divine," and if you want, you know, babysitters or if you want people, you know, touch the divine with you, let's do it. And see, that's fine, but you know you don't want to get wrapped up in the I am the Messiah and I am the one who's going to free people.
0: Right, the whole guru people are gonna,
1: all that people will figure out ways to free themselves. They mm-hmm. don't need you. I figured out a long time ago when I was doing a magazine. You know what? People don't need me to discover psychedelics. People will discover psychedelics without me. They'll discover psychedelics without you. There doesn't need to be a Messiah. People will figure it out on their own. I mean, they have been forever. Even in the darkest ages of prohibition, people will find a way to get mm. it, get the knowledge they need. Right. And uh, you know, it's not up to one person to be the Messiah to change the world. Everybody changes the world every day by the way they interact
0: with. It. That's right. So no question about it, it, it.
1: Keep it real and don't lose your head. Yeah. Is, is the lesson.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and the butterfly effect. You know, I mean, you don't have to change the world. It's real. Change little things. Do that's your own right. thing.
1: That's right. So. That's right. I mean, and that's really the greatest wisdom that you can find in, the, in that space is that. Man taking a breath and running the water and you know doing little things like interacting with people is all energy exchange mm. keeping the wheels turning and um, it's you know life life is a big cog mechanism where people interact and everybody's cog affects everybody else's oh, no. you know as insignificant as you might feel you you perturb the people around you in ways that have to move in your orbit to be with you, so you're actually affecting uh, you know, the world just by your interaction. You bend to meet and sort of make like minds with other people. Yeah.
0: And you have no your your actions are sort of ambiguous. You you have no way of knowing what the results might be or, you know, sort of
1: Yeah. I mean, right. You just have to hope for Hope for,
0: hope for the good <laughs> sort of lean toward
1: the best yeah. yeah yeah i know i know the word see and that's the thing is when people try to get too goal-oriented and say yes well, i'm going to do this really positive thing and create a movement they really i mean creating a ground swell is almost like creating the hazard for the groundswell right. to like fall out from under you
0: right i mean if there's a <laughs> lesson if, there, if there's a lesson from the 60s i mean gosh i mean that's sort of what happened i guess it was yeah. a ground swell, but man they weren't ready for the for the reaction that just slammed it to the wall you know put everyone in jail and she, christ made it so so no one could even look at the stuff
1: and the and i think people's attitudes about psychedelics are changing i think you're seeing it in academia and i think you're seeing we're seeing more studies being approved mm-hmm. and maps being able to fund more studies uh above board research okay. with, with actual controlled substances and that's sort of heartening and you get the, the supreme court ruling that
0: right with the udv yeah
1: yeah, so uh, I don't see it too far away from the time when people will be able to have like a controlled, like psychothera- psychotherapeutic, shamanic type of prescription if that's what they needed, without actually having to fly to the Amazon right. or um, you know do something sketchy in their friend's basement right. or whatever. Right. Right. Um, I think that uh, that uh, these are you know small steps and People like Rick Doblin and the Hefter research group are are you know they realize that the stuff that they're doing now they that are they're just like little steps just like the stuff that I'm doing you know I there's no way of proving right now whether the theory that I'm trying to put forward is true or not, but what I'm trying to do is move the thinking forward so people you know can kind of keep keep updating the, uh, the understanding of what their own brain is capable of right. and the limits that, they, that it can be put to. Um, the model that I'm working on is, is based on the notion that uh, the only the only process of the brain that has the capacity to achieve the kind of output that you see in a psychedelic state from just the tiniest, tiniest little bit of substance. I mean, the only thing that makes sense is, is this notion of feedback, where you've got kind of a, the internal driver. And uh, one... One metaphor that I like to use when describing it is uh, a friend of mine and I were having this discussion about what's real and what's not real in the spirit world, mm-hmm. and he was making a very hard argument that the spirits are ontologically real, solid entities right. that live in a, in a shamanic dimension nearby that we can access under the influence of psychedelics.
0: Uh-huh. It's some sort of a key into that realm, right. or something.
1: And no. my my response to that is okay if we can sense them with our organs, you know, our eyes. We can feel them with our with our brains. Whatever we can sense them. Mm-hmm. That means they're physical. They have mass. They have energy. They could be sensed. We should be able to build a sensor that sees these mm-hmm. things that we see under the influence of psychedelics. You know that it's not outside the realm of, of you know we can.
0: Well, we have sensors that see everything camera. else. I mean, yeah, we can
1: see everything else. We can see infrared. We can see right. the gamma spectrum. We can see everything. Right. And um, you know, we, don't, we don't key in on this dimension now. How high energy are we talking about here? I mean, you, let's get real about this. <laughs> now, I was, and I was saying to him, listen, you, if you can't build a camera that captures this dimension, what can we do with an existing camera that would mimic the psychedelic state? And the, and, the, and the first trick you learn to do with a camera is you shoot it, at, you shoot it at, at the monitor, its own output, and you get this spiral that goes off into infinity. You get mm. this receding video feedback, right. and you know, and you put your hand in front of it, and whoa, there's trails. You know, your computer is tripping, basically, <laughs> <laughs> or your 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 camera and your TV are tripping. You know, it's like stepping into that hall of mirrors where you've got things receding right, into infinity, infinity mirror, inside yeah. of you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. That's a simple trick, you know. You don't need alternate dimensions to make your TV trip out. Right. This this infinite loop it exists inside this 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 electrical circuit. Basically, you're shooting photons through, a, you know, they get transferred to electrons. You're basically channeling electrons through a loop and making this spiral, this infinite spiral. Now, is that closed loop created there? An ontologically discrete universe Mm -hmm. that just exists in infinity over and over and over forever. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Now think about that process happening in your brain, where your brain is is both the camera and the monitor output, Hmm. and you're just focusing your your sensory processes inward on each other, like this like this fractally receding kaleidoscope, Uh, and and that becomes its own ontologically distinct. Just like when you're dreaming, inside your dream bubble is an ontologically distinct space. Um, you create this closed-off universe that, that, that loops inwards on itself, you know, and there's like a little bubble universe right there while you're experiencing it.
0: And James, you mentioned this fact that uh, it takes such a small amount. Like for, for LSD, for example, I mean, I th- I've heard reports or read reports that as little as like 50 micrograms could be sort of felt, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and for I mean, maybe explain a little bit about that to the audience about how little I mean pharmacologically that makes people go that that alone is sort of a mystery.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I think the mystery has to do basically with receptor affinity and how quickly the, the molecule is metabolized and the the the, the interesting thing about LSD is its shape. A chemist will tell you that LSD has this big, clumsy shape. It's not like the other tryptamines;
2: It's tail it's, yeah.
1: it's kind of complex. And that means it breaks down slower. And that also means that it kind of has cross-activity with a variety of different receptor subtypes. So it gets into a lot of different things. Um, and the fact that it takes so little to start this little chain reaction isn't really that much of a surprise in and of itself. Okay. The fact that the brain, I think, so willingly moves toward this experience, like when you feel a psychedelic experience coming on,
2: your whole body and
1: your whole brain, everything adjusts to kind of like make it happen. There's a, there's a shift towards mm-hmm okay, this thing is we've got the ball rolling and it's going to—it's a, it's a cascade effect that kind of needs to keep moving until it hits the peak. And when you get to the peak, you know you've hit the peak and then that's enough. When, you, when you've when you got what you were there for, you just want to come down and that's over. Right. Okay, I'm ready to stop it now. But you know, it only takes, a, since this is like a kind of feedback re- reaction that, that, that fuels itself, it only takes the littlest bit of tweaking right. to actually get, Get it kind of sparking in that in that feedback. Uh, it's kind of like a, kind of like a resonant feedback process that, that pushes the intensity upward. And once it starts, it sort of feeds on itself. All right. And cool. it only takes a little little bit to start the process. Um, and if the mo- the longer the molecule stays in the body and the, and the more of an affinity it has to the specific receptor subtype that we're talking about the 5HT2A receptor subtype. The quicker and the longer you'll go into this thing. Okay. There's some drugs like mescaline, you know, that have kind of a lower and more scattered receptor affinity, mm-hmm. and actually get to the peak of a psychedelic experience, like you would get on LSD, you need to do like
0: seven hundred oh, yeah. milligrams oh. yeah, it's like a big or, or a yeah.
1: gram, right. you know, and you actually need to work. You actually need to work through the physical processes, like.
0: Consuming you,
1: know, you need to really grind into it to get the <laughs> full intensity out of it. Uh, whereas with LSD, it just sort of slides in so naturally, huh. uh, especially clean LSD. Um, and of course, DMT when smoked, it's just
0: All right. So it's immediate, almost it's so
1: fast. It's like it's like you know turning a lever in your brain. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right,
0: well look, let's um. The, the word catalyst comes to mind, and, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. uh, and I'm looking now at your page, actually, the, uh, the introduction for psychedelic information theory. Mm-hmm. And once again, everybody on the web at trypsene.com, and then just click through, you'll find it. Let me just read the first sentence here, James. It says, uh, this is Chapter 3, Psychedelic Information Theory. No matter what you, no matter what you may happen to believe about, about psychedelics, one thing about them is evident. They are catalysts for generating information within the mind of the user. Uh, maybe just riff on that for a minute, because that that that's that's a pretty profound statement, I think, if nothing else, and it's something yeah. that something needs to be talked about. So.
1: Okay. Well, so much of what we think about in terms of society and culture and uh, human knowledge is what I, I refer to as echo chamber. People kind of have a set of knowledge, culture has a set of knowledge, and things that are just known, common sense things that are known that they toss around to each other. And smarts and knowledge and wisdom is sort of gauged on how much of these little pieces of of codified wisdom you can reproduce at any one time. Now, now every once in a while, new shit, you know, for, for lack of a better term, new stuff comes in to the mix. And you know, some of that comes through, you know, dreaming, some of it comes through intuition, people piecing together old ideas into new, mm-hmm. new stuff. Mm-hmm. But other stuff just comes from off the map.
2: Right. Just, just Wow. Off
1: flat out off the map, like, man, how did that happen? And sometimes it's, you know, a psychotic episodes or schizophrenic, or there's chemical imbalance or there's some sort of electroshock therapy involved or whatever. <laughs> or sometimes it's psychedelic. Right. And psychedelics, if nothing else, generate a lot of this sort of random noise in the culture. Some of it is brilliant, some of it is lacked out, some of it is absurd, some of it is poignant, some of it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, it's like it generates new stuff. It generates new stuff. It generates new content. And I think that's that's, you know, one of the things about psychedelic information theory that I wanted to to, to make clear more than anything is that these things, they are that they're they're noise generators. They're like party buzzers, thrown into culture. They just they stir up noise, and the, the question about psychedelic use is, what kind of usable signal can we filter out of this noise? How can we channel that down into like like a laser beam focus about what we want to achieve within the psychedelic mm. state and why? Mm. So you know basically trying to maximize the potential of this oh. of this catalyst um, into um, you know end result. And it's something that you know shamans do intuitively. They know how to channel into the to the specific outcome that they want and and make it happen. Whereas a lot of people who dabble in psychedelics are pretty much just over, overcome by the noise. They haven't learned how to how to channel the vent down into the into the end result they want. They just kind of get pulled by it into whatever direction they're taking and they kinda of get swept away and something you know, something profound might happen or something scary might happen and then they have an experience to integrate, but they're not really
0: running. The rolling trail, sort of, they're yeah. just sort of like
1: a long for the roller coaster ride. So psychedelic information theory itself is a way to, you know, first of all, it recognizes that there's a lot of noise being generated. And hey, so Within that noise is like the Grateful Dead, but within that is also, you know, a lot of scientific thinking well, and intuitive thinking that goes on in society.
0: Let me let me jump into this for a second and ask you something about it. it. It seems ironic to me a little bit that 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 the psychedelics sort of catalyze, like you like you say, and Western culture sort of prides itself on, you know, creativity and innovation and this sort of thing. And it seems like they would sort of go better together than they, than they do. You and know, psychedelics
1: and innovation?
0: Yeah. In other, in other, no. words, in other words, the culture doesn't looks down on it, but those are the things that sort of catalyze what the culture prides itself upon.
1: I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think when these things were scheduled, people didn't really look at it that way. People didn't think, no, 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 no. If we keep psychedelics legal, all of the pop stars can take it and make really good dance songs. <laughs> you know, they, they didn't think about it that way. But really, that's what happens with psychedelics: is you get people making these sort of bizarre avant-garde art
0: forms. Right, it's primarily That become
1: mainstream generation. culture. Mm-hmm. So you get, you know, ads on your TV for for sneakers or cars that are filled with breakbeats and acid house music. And and so. That obviously came from a psychedelic influence. I mean, when you see a commercial for Starburst where everything is exploding in right. kaleidoscopic colors right. or whatever, yeah, it's like these people are obviously like the Starburst is the metaphor for LSD. You know, Putting yeah, the a rainbow of flavors on your tongue and
0: right. you know, you
1: explode into this kaleidoscopic space. So overtly psychedelic. Amazing. But it's candy, right? They're selling candy. Mm-hmm. But. <laughs> So you know, and you and you see psychedelic stuff ripped off in movies. I mean, The Matrix was basically a, a techno wet dream mm-hmm, in this mm-hmm. psychedelic virtual space, and that's I think you know, culture responded to that. Not just my me, gosh, but culture just went yes, you know, we like that virtual hypnotic you know slowed down time thing. You know, it's like we understand something visceral about that. But oh yeah, some part of who we are. Even if they don't look at it immediately like I do and go psychedelic, because you see—I mean, you see it everywhere. Yeah. You see it everywhere once you're trained. Once you're trained to look for it and understand, you know, what people mean when they're talking about psychedelic. And um, so, I think people are, are, are starting to grasp that more when I say that things like that are changing. People hmm. are starting to grasp that, you know, okay, this is something that arty and creative people do. You know, and it's you know not mess. And it's not hot. It's something, it's a different kind of thing that makes them a little eccentric when they come out of it because now they're all filled with these strange avant garde ideas. You know. And their aesthetic is maybe a little weird that we don't understand it, but pretty soon all the teenage girls are going to be picking it up. So, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm so amazed at these brat stalls that they have now. Where they're like little rave girls, they're like little candy raver girls with tattoos and earrings and the short little skirts and amazing it's it's i can't you know I can't believe how saturated culture has become with that, that kind of psychedelic hipster iconography it's sure. it really is i mean it's 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 absurd to some point when you consider how uh, scared people were of that whole thing Gosh, so no. long ago,
0: yeah, no doubt about it. All right, hey, look, um, we've got about, well, I don't know, we got about 12 or 13 minutes or so. I want to ask you about something that, that, that's actually in the table of contents here, but, it, but it's not linked up yet. So it's probably something that you've, you're working on, but there's not a lot of stuff on the web.
2: Sure. And
0: it's in the third part. You talk about magic and mysticism uh-huh. and medicine, this sort of thing.
2: Uh-huh.
0: I've always had sort of this interest in magic. Um, and I don't know, maybe you could just talk about it a little bit, How 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 that ties into the whole thing and what... What is it? What's going on? Because, well, okay. the, because at times there do seem to be, I don't know, for lack of a better word, magical things right. that happen.
1: Right. Okay. So magic, I think, you know, if, if you want to talk about magic, you want to get into a technical de- definition of what it is. And it seems to be supernatural control over the manipulation of reality, causing events to unfold the way you want them to, causing something to happen. That is to your good fortune. Um, through some some supernatural means. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's what we'll, we'll, de- we'll define magic that way. Because if you can if you can define how it's done, then it's not magic. It's some sort of technology.
2: Right, right.
1: Okay, so now in the shamanic space, when I when I talk about magic, I'm I'm really talking about the manipulation of reality, and that's not only physical reality. It's the perceived reality that people have. Hmm. So when a ma- magician does a trick, he's manipulating reality. He's manipulating what's going on in his hand or in his construction, his magic box, whatever. He's also manipulating what the audience perceives. Right, he's manipulating exactly. reality on two levels. Okay. Okay. Now, that's essentially the way magic is performed in the shamanic space. And you not only need to, when. When people are on psychedelics, there's this there's this sense that um, the potential outcomes of the situation that you might be in are they're geometrically expanded. You know, suddenly you're not just in a room with a bunch of people that you know. You're in the room with a bunch of other people, you know, and suddenly anything can happen. You know what I mean? So it just completely maximizes that, that unprobability factor, that improbability factor that, that normally dictates how people interact right. right? So when something happens that maybe is just the slightest bit coincidental or rings on the yes, I was wanting this to happen, or okay, I dropped that hint and now it's you know moving in the direction that I wanted to. Um, hmm. There's that kind of magic that happens because there's a lot of what I call sparking going on. Mm-hmm. People are kind of like, oh, they're really suggestive, and the, the littlest suggestion can spark a lot of things. Kay. And if you're and if you're on it, if you're on top of it, you almost can know before you say something huh. exactly what the reaction on everybody's face will be. will be before you say it, and it almost becomes like you're in a play at that hmm. point. Okay. Okay, so you're having a little bit of backwards causality. Wow. You see what people are going to think yeah. a few, a few, like a half second before they actually think it, and so you can jerk them along on this chain, <laughs> <laughs> where you're basically running the room. Okay, and that's one kind of magic because you're, 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 you, like a magician, you're setting people up to get something and then you're dropping it on them and then you're 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 altering their perception of reality right. maybe manipulating them without without them knowing it mm-hmm. but you're operating on two levels you're operating on the level where you're interacting you're operating on the level where you're anticipating the interaction okay okay so that's one kind of magic now there's another kind of magic where things just spontaneously happen that are beyond your control like you you're you're tripping and it's been a horrible day, but suddenly there's a break in the clouds and the sun shines through hmm. and what was a horrible trip is now the most magical, wonderful thing. And the sunset is just so beautiful you could have never have planned it that way. It's just like, oh my how how did that happen?
0: Right, it's raining all around but there's a hole in the middle and right, you're, standing, right. and there you're,
1: and you're and standing in it and it's just one of these moments where it's just like, Okay, God knows I'm here <laughs> and now I feel it and I feel safe and happy and warm because gave me a big hug or I've been recognized. The universe has recognized my has recognized my anguish and is somehow making it all right. I'm getting the sign that things are good. Now again you're 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 basically amplifying the context of the experience to the extreme level where this was all set up for me. And re- and realistically that's not an absurd thing to make. I mean the world was literally all set up for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had millions of years of ancestors clawing through each other over mud and basically dodging bullets and and, and whatever you know, else and teeth to get us and here and whatever else to get here. Yeah. So there's been a lot of setup and energy put into you being hmm. you, mm-hmm. and having that all click together in your head at the moment that something good is happening.
0: Yeah, this is genetic memory and morphic resonance like, and all this, right? It's just like,
1: bang! I am. You get that? I'm so fortunate. You get that I am so lucky that I'm here and I'm seeing the sun and I'm feeling the warmth on my face and I you know, maybe I was over trivial I mean, maybe I was freaking out on something really trivial and it is a good day after all, hmm. and it's not a bad trip. Interesting. And you have these magic turnarounds in your mood that happen. Right. Um, just you know, out of the spontaneous the spontaneous interaction with, with the world. Hmm. And there's, you know, People can. And what I'm saying is, people can turn mundane stuff into magic moments if that magic moment is really what they need most right. at that time. And I've seen those magic moments go down. I've actually had magic moments myself, but I've actually seen magic moments go down where I wasn't experiencing the magic moment, but I knew definitely what the person huh. was experiencing, huh. and I was just like, "Yes, okay, you huh. get to have moments like these in your life. Most right. no people don't realize that, but you do get you to have to get huh. to have these like." Everything is just lined up on me right now, That's and it's awesome. good. Hmm. And being able to kind of like wallow in that and just like, yes, <laughs> even though you know that the rest of your life you may never actually get might not that get that again, again, right. the fact that you have had it once or twice is really enough. Just yeah. knowing that it exists is, is it keeps you going. You may you kind of get when people say flashbacks. That's so kind of what I think about when I feel like. Just a warm contentment, but everything is just good. Life is good. It reminds me of you know that feeling that you have after really hard trips, where you come out at the end of it thinking, you know, the stuff that I was really psyching on is just really not that big, not that important. And I am so lucky just to be breathing right now. <laughs> I feel good. I'm healthy. Let's take life by the horns and ride it. Right. You know? Yeah. No so doubt. Yeah. No that's doubt. you know that's really that's That's what you want to get out of a psychedelic trip, and that's the kind of experience that you want to keep with you for a lifetime that you can't really replicate anywhere else uh, except through like extreme physical trial like mm-hmm. climbing a mountain and having this grueling physical ordeal mm-hmm. that you have to overcome right. well you can you can you don't have to climb a mountain literally, but you know when you have that experience it's the same thing whether it's drug induced or not right. it's that exhilaration that makes it worthwhile
0: huh all right well look hey we got a couple more minutes here let's talk a little bit about the book um, what's next you're you're working on publishing I know that uh, what, can, what can people do to help
1: mm, well they can go to the site and make a donation if they like what they read and uh, people who donate now will get a copy of the book when it's published uh, I'm trying I've had a couple offers for, for having it published and I'm not sure what size run I want to do and how big I want it to be and uh, I kind of want to keep it limited to people who are interested in the field mm-hmm. for the first run, and so people who kind of hook up with me on the website through donations will follow the evolution of the material closer, and definitely be the first ones to get the copy, the copies when they're released. And you know, I'm I'm not really looking to be like um, I don't really. I don't really care if the book sells a lot of copies. I'm not really trying to, to sell out and, and, and like write a book that everybody's going to want to read, because really it's a very limited audience. I've, I've been publishing in this field for a right, while, right? You're pretty
0: I, familiar with, and it,
1: I so. have an idea of what the size of the audience is out there. So, you know, I'm not going to be going on like a full press tour with Random House or whatever. It's going to be a very low key uh, kind of thing for people to, you know, pick up because it's the book it's the kind of book that I wish I had. had.
0: It looks like a, it's like a great reference book is what it looks when like. It's going I, to be, when I when mean. I first
1: started because when I when I first started getting into this, I met a lot of people who were into like the I Ching and the Myan Calendar His mm-hmm. Parents was like all right. over the Yi Ching right. and the Mayan Calendar and I was thinking wait 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 what is the Yi Ching and the Myan calendar have to do with anything? You know, I, I think we've gone off course here and I wanted to get like back to let's talk about the organ that is generating the experience. <laughs> let's talk about, you know, how, how the body works and how the mind works and let's get back to talking about, you know, the theories that actually kinda of make sense to people who aren't willing to make the leap to uh, fairy spirits and and interdimensional portals
0: and, right, and, and L, that I kind understand. of
1: thing. Because there are a lot of people who can tune into the experience much better with with what I call a technical description mm. of the experience than with a shamanic description of the experience. The shamanic experience kind of scares people. The technical experience they, they understand. They understand that, that there is like a, a level of control there, that they have, they have responsive control over the space if they just kind of understand the technical aspect of how their brain is working. And that's what I'm trying to accomplish with this book, is people to kind of like get that mastery or that sense of control over their brain before jumping into the experience, because mm. you know I had to reverse engineer it. I learned backwards. If I yeah. had a shaman or a guru or somebody teaching me how to think before I went in, it would have been easier for me to accept that modality. But I came from a very technical background, so yeah. I wanted a technical description, and mm. that's what I'm trying to provide. So I hope people who are interested in that can can take something from it.
0: All right. Well, I will tell you, since since uh, since you and I began. Uh, corresponding just I don't know a month and a half ago, or so I've I've read a whole lot of stuff from the site that I hadn't read before, obviously, and it certainly has given me a different perspective uh, on the way I view some of this stuff too. So it's uh, it's it's well worth w- worth it I think for people who are interested in this stuff to go and read and uh, check out some of the stuff that, that James is writing about. It's it's fascinating and pretty pretty intense as a matter of fact <laughs> But but gosh, uh, an amazing amount of, of experience that goes into it too James. I mean you you've, you've been in the thick of it for a long, long time, so it's, it's you know it's not uh, it's not written by by an amateur, certainly
1: No, yeah I mean I, I, I can be academic at times, but I, I really don't come from an academic background. I come from a very uh, experiential background. I basically cruised through the scene and and ran with a lot of different people and tried a lot of different things and you know, I just came to the conclusion that Everybody's got a different take on it, and you can't really believe the dogma or the religion because it's so—it changes from person to person and from context to context. Yeah. You really got to get down to the kind of the nuts and bolts that's of what's bolts happening right. in your brain and understand the instrument, uh, and then you can can really maximize the experience without, All right.
0: without the baggage of the dogma. Yeah, Well, ho- well, ho- hopefully this uh, your book is a, is a is a step towards that. So thanks. All right, man. Well, look, thanks very much. I appreciate it. You've been with us for two hours. It's a long time, I know, on a Monday night, but uh, it's been well worth it, and we'll get this show uh, up on the web in a short period of time here right. and let, let some other people hear it. So. Yeah, it's been fun. James, thanks a whole lot for all your work and sure. for spending time with us, and uh, for my listeners as well, uh, we'll, well. We'll talk to you again, okay? Best of luck. All right, thanks. cheers. Take care. Bye. All right, everybody, James Kent. You can find information about James at www.tripzine.com and uh, check out his new book and lots of stuff from it uh, available on the web from Psychedelic Information Theory. Again, it's uh, tripzine, T-R-I-P-Z-I-N-E.com. This is Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back with you next week. We're going to take the week off from uh, interviews and have open lines, talk to some of the listeners, and whatever's on your mind, we'll chat about and we'll talk about some news, play a bunch of music, and I don't know, whatever else. So we'll finish things off with one more song from my good friend Eskimo. Information about him can be found at eskmo.com. And one more time to James Kent at www.tripzine.com. And we'll talk to you all next week, okay? This is Mike. Say hi on the web in between now and then at www.mikehagan.com.